John of our business. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. I uh, I look like I'm pregnant. <laughs> the shirt that I'm wearing is just kind of like puffed out in all the wrong areas. It's pretty annoying. Um, I have quite the show for you today. I have um, I have an abnormally long list of stories that we're going to get to, particularly because this is the last show before Politicon. So I will be at Politicon um, this weekend. It's in Tennessee. Come and join us. If, uh, if you haven't bought tickets, if you live in the area, if you got some time off, it's in Nashville, Tennessee, October 26th and 27th, and we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to give you a little preview of the panels that we have. Um, in fact, I'll leave with that in just a second, but the other stuff that we will be talking about today is, uh, of course, Hillary Clinton versus Tulsi Gabbard, Michael Moore and AOC both officially endorsed Bernie Sanders. Um, we have irrefutable proof that the media, no matter what Bernie does, the media will attack him. And this is the most stark example of that I think I've ever seen. Donald Trump was forced back from doing what would have been the most brazenly corrupt thing um, in this political era. So we'll talk about that. We got Mayor Pete doubling down on his corporate awfulness. Rand Paul goes after socialism and face plants. It really is a, a show that you're not going to want to miss. I'm going to go after the Fox News goons who argue uh, against tipping. We have some anti-tipping hosts who are millionaires on Fox News. That should be fun, destroying them. And then later on in the show today... Wait until you hear what's going on in Mexico. It's absolutely insane. You know, you have uh, the drug cartels are so powerful that they just did something that maybe is a first in human history. So you're not going to want to miss that either. All right, so let's get started. And without further ado, I'm going to jump right into a little, little conversation here about what you have to look forward to at Politicon. So this upcoming weekend is Politicon, the political convention for 2019, and it is in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, if you live, you know, anywhere in the general vicinity, I highly recommend you come by if you're, say, I don't know, within two hours or so of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, If not, I also highly recommend maybe you uh, get some plane tickets and get over there because this is going to be fun. This is going to be really fun. So I want to give you a little bit of a preview of um, what you have to look forward to. Now, it's two days, Saturday and Sunday. I will be participating in events both days. So first of all, at 12.30 p.m. on Saturday, I'm doing a meet and greet. Now, that was originally planned for Sunday, but they kind of messed up and had me back to back to back, where I would have had to do the meet and greet, and then a panel, and then a debate, one after the other after the other. And, you know, I basically emailed them and said, I mean, that's that's a little wild because you only get, like, you know, five minutes at most of a buffer between the events, so I'd have to be, like, immediately ushered super fast from one place to another place in the convention room to another place. So um, it was just a little bit too much logistically, and I told them you might want to switch that up a little bit. So now we have a meet-and-greet at 1230 uh, PM on Saturday, 
and I, I, I asked for about an hour and a half. I think they were only able to squeeze me in for an hour, so I'll have time to, you know, take pictures with you guys and whatnot. Unfortunately, maybe not too much time to really, like, chat, but, um, you know, I'll be able to talk to you guys a little bit and definitely uh, take pictures and whatnot. Uh, then we have, at 6 o'clock, I'm not going to give away everything that's happening on these panels, but I'll give you little bits and pieces that are interesting. Um, at 6 o'clock on Saturday, 6 p.m., we have, I have my first panel. Now, on that panel will be Tim Black. So Tim Black, another lefty political commentator here on YouTube. Um, it's him and I, and I'm guessing we will be kind of teaming up in one way or another against the other two people on that panel. Um, if I'm not mistaken... If I'm not mistaken, and if this doesn't get switched, and I'm sure all this stuff is subject to maybe change a little bit, and there goes the BP laptop, um, that panel will include a little person by the name of Tomato Lorenzo. So that's something that uh, I'm sure a lot of people thought might never happen, myself included. I don't know if she forgot my name and maybe didn't realize that she's on a panel with me and therefore didn't back out of it. But nonetheless, it'll be um, myself, Tim Black, and uh, Tommy Lauren. And then also I think Lauren Chen is on that panel as well. So that's the first panel at 6 p.m. on Saturday. That should be a lot of fun. Um, so those are the two things I'm doing Saturday, meet and greet plus that panel. Now, Sunday's another busy day. Sunday I'll be doing a panel the first one is what direction the Democrats should go in from here. Okay, we did a similar panel to that last year, but what's really interesting about the panel this year is it's no longer, you know, me and at least one other actual lefty on the panel. Last year it was like three actual lefties on the panel. I think it was me. Um, no, Sam Cedar was the moderator. It was myself. Oh, David Packard and Anna Kasparian, and we were all, you know, relatively in agreement in terms of the direction the Democratic Party should go. You know, hey, go to the left, go Bernie Sanders style, fight for Medicare for all, so on and so forth. This year in that panel, this is, might be like low-key, the sleeper, great, pa great panel of, the, of Politicon. It's myself and three other people who I think it's very fair to categorize as centrist. Okay, I'll, I'll give you one of the people that's supposed to be on that panel, James Carville. James Carville is the guy who basically ran Bill Clinton's campaign um, and, you know, was kind of one of the strategists who's responsible for getting him elected. So he is as hardcore as you could possibly get in the camp of don't go Bernie Sanders style. You got to go centrist because that's the way you win. And I know because I'm the guy who got this guy elected and this guy ran a centrist campaign. So I actually think in a weird way that panel might have the most fireworks. I can't say for sure. I don't know. Don't know until it happens, but there's a chance that that panel actually gets the most heated. Now, um, and then, of course, the main event is myself, as you can see over my shoulder, as you saw from the beginning. It'll be myself versus uh, Charlie Kirk. That's Sunday at 4 p.m. So, you know, if, you're, if you want to watch that Democratic panel and then you want to watch the Charlie Kirk thing, and there's another reason why I was trying to get them to space out my events a little bit, it's going to be, it'll be like a mad rush of people who wanted to see my panel and then want to see the debate with me and Charlie Kirk. So you'll have like a migration of people going from one place to another place. And it might get a little bit busy, a little bit hectic, a little bit of a horde of a crowd there or whatever. But I highly recommend that you partake in that horde <laughs> and that you're part of that crowd because that's going to be a lot of fun. 
Um, we're just, it's just a debate where we're going to cover a whole bunch of ground. I mean, a lot of it is kind of Trump focused, but we do get into the economy. We do get into foreign policy. There should be a lot of interesting questions that we go back and forth on. Last year, Charlie Kirk and I were on a panel together where uh, it was, how are we all going to get along? And we found some ways to get along. You know, we found some ways, whether it was, I think, marijuana legalization, we agreed. We agreed generally that Saudi Arabia is bad, albeit for potentially different reasons. But there was a lot more agreement there. Here, I don't know if there will be much disagreement. I mean, it's possible maybe that, you know, I start giving my take and he's like, yeah, I agree with that. It's possible, but it's also possible that there's a little bit of a clash that goes on there. So um, if you're anywhere near Tennessee, come join us. It's in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, if you're not in Tennessee, hop on a plane and come join us anyway. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. It'll be really exciting. And then a little uh, bonus cherry on top here is, there's a couple cherries on top. Uh, Corn will be with me, partner in crime. There's going to be a lot of uh, videos, behind the scenes stuff that are going to be uploaded, not just on Secular Talk, and there will be some on Secular Talk, but also on his channel. So if you want to see more behind the scenes stuff, uh, subscribe to Corin's channel. I'll, I'll leave that link in the video description box, as well as the link for the Politicon tickets. Um, but subscribe to Corin's channel because you'll get some more extra stuff there. And then immediately after Politicon, we hop on a plane, we go to L.A. Um, when I'm in L.A., I'll be doing TYT's The Conversation on October 30th, the day before Halloween. Um, and then on October 29th, that's two days before Halloween, uh, I'll be doing the Joe Rogan podcast. So October 29th is the Joe Rogan podcast. Really looking forward to that. Then TYT is the conversation on the 30th. Um, and, yeah, so this is, this is you know, a lot of stuff going on. Politicon, then Rogan, then TYT is the conversation. So, anyway, keep your eye out for all that stuff. Really looking forward to it. And I hope I see a lot of you at Politicon. Okay, now, all right, because it's a day that ends in Y, we will, before we continue, I will fix the beepy laptop, and by fix, I mean wrestle with it for an hour and a half and get absolutely nothing accomplished, because that's the way that it works these days. That should be marginally better. Marginally better, baby. Okay. I know you were all waiting for this one, and it is here. Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton versus Tulsi Gabbard. Let's do the damn thing. Hillary Clinton came out of the forest that she was hiding in to take some rather petty shots at one Tulsi Gabbard. I believe she was on a podcast when she made these comments. Who knew that Hillary Clinton was podcasting? Um, So she accused Tulsi of being a Russian asset, a Russian puppet. I believe her exact words were, I got my eye on one of these candidates because I think uh, she's being, quote, groomed for a third-party run. Now, my understanding is she also threw Jill Stein in there, said she was effectively, you know, a Russian asset. 
Um, and unfortunately, this is kind of expected at this point from Hillary Clinton. When she's out of the public eye, we all breathe a sigh of relief. Every time she manages to force her name back into the news, it's almost always because she's accusing somebody of being an asset of Russia. I mean, obviously she did it with Trump in the entire campaign, and now the move is with somebody who's running for the Democratic presidential nomination. It's particularly silly because Tulsi Gabbard has now repeatedly stated at least twice, probably three times, or maybe even more than that, ones that I haven't seen, she said, I'm not running third party. I'm not going to run third party. That's not going to happen. Now, by the way, if Tulsi or anybody else decided they wanted to run third party, does that mean that they're a Russian asset? No, <laughs> not at all. I like how that's like just the default assumption now. Like, well, obviously, if you run third party or independent, you're, you know, Vladimir Putin's puppet. I mean, no, that's just, that's simply not true. But even if you were to buy into that logic, she said she's not going to do that. So the evidence Hillary Clinton presents is a thing that Tulsi has said that's not going to happen. So it's particularly like unhinged. And that's the main point that we need to take away here is that ever since Donald Trump became president, there has been over time, the corporate centrists have become more and more and more like Alex Jones. They have all of these, you know, silly conspiracy theories to try to justify and rationalize why nobody likes them. And that's the reality, is that Hillary Clinton lost to a candidate who was a joke, who was the most disliked political candidate in American history. I'm not joking about that. The poll showed that. He was way underwater on the day of the election. She was too, but her favorability was a little bit higher than his was, and she lost. So you need to rationalize and justify, you know, your abysmal failure as a political candidate. So what do you do? Well, you gotta blame. If you blame it on a nefarious outside influence, well, then it magically absolves you of all problems and absolves you of all mistakes. And you say, hey, man, it wasn't me. It was, it was the meddling from outside, and that's Russia and Trump. I mean, that, this is what happened. It's the meddling from outside. If, if Vladimir Putin wasn't involved, if Russia wasn't involved, I obviously would have won. That's the implication. Now, with Tulsi, my hunch is, and I don't even know if this is a hunch. This is more of like a highly educated guess because she's alluded to such previously. Um, since Tulsi is bucking the elite narrative on Syria, and since she calls out the regime change war in Syria and the fact that the U.S. government has been directly and indirectly trying to topple Assad in Syria, since Tulsi's against that, they're using that as further evidence. Like, see, she's doing Putin's bidding. Why? Because uh, the Syrian government is allied with Assad. Syrian government is allied, or excuse me, the Syrian government is allied with Putin. Obviously, Assad is the Syrian government, so that wouldn't make sense. So Assad and Putin are allies. And the argument is, well, geopolitically, if you're you know, arguing for a position that would benefit the Syrian government, you're also arguing for a position that benefits Russia. So therefore, you're an asset of Russia. This is the logic. Now, it is true that the Syrian government and the Russian government are allies, and Putin and Assad are allies. That's true. But that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything. You know, Russia also doesn't want a nuclear war with the United States. 
So if, if I don't want nuclear war also, am I doing Vladimir Putin's bidding and feeding into his narrative? Because I happen to agree with him on that. By the way, also, Russia and the Assad government in Syria, you know who they've been fighting for, for quite a while? Every time I say Syri, Syria, my phone goes to Syria. But they've been fighting ISIS. So Russia is anti-ISIS. Assad is anti-ISIS. Um, does that mean that in order for me to show I'm not aligned with them, I have to be pro-ISIS? And by the way, in a funny roundabout way, I don't know how funny it actually is, but um, Hillary Clinton and all of her fellow elite goons like David Petraeus, they support arming al-Qaeda to fight ISIS. They support jihadists not only in Syria, but in Yemen. So this is a, a, a policy that the U.S. has been using for a very long time. It goes, dates all the way back to Reagan when we armed the Mujahideen to fight the Soviet Union at the time. So it actually has been our stated policy. When Tulsi Gabbard comes out with a proposal like the Stop Arming Terrorists Act, that's who that's targeting. It's targeting people like Hillary. It's targeting people like virtually the entire Republican Party behind the scenes, which supported the, the funneling of arms and the funding of these moderate rebel groups, which turned out to not be so moderate. So it, because I'm against arming jihadists to try to topple Assad, and I'm against arming jihadists on the ground in Yemen, which benefits Saudi Arabia, because I'm against that, therefore um, I'm a Putin puppet, I'm a Putin asset. See how, see how the game is rigged? Anytime you take a position that's non-interventionist, they can spin that and say, well, you're conceding to Russia because the world, and this is her worldview, by the way, and she's admitted so much. The world is a giant chessboard, and you have Russia versus the United States. So every move we make is a move in that game. So we never want to cede any control. We want to have a, you know, a foothold in the Middle East. We want to expand our region of control. And anytime anybody comes out and says, I don't want to be involved in these wars, they go, aha, see? Putin puppet, Russian asset. And that's all she's got. And that, if there's anything you take away from this video, it has to be that. Hillary Clinton is an A-list celebrity at this point. Everybody knows that. She can use her status. She can use her name recognition to push for anything at all, anything. And what does she use it for? She comes out of the woods every couple months and stinks up the place and says, like, Tulsi Gabbard is a Russian asset. Whoever she doesn't like is, is a Putin puppet. Why are you not using, you know, your name to, for universal health care, Medicare for all? Why are you not using your name for free college, student loan debt cancellation? Whatever it may be, I don't care. I'm sure there's some issues where I nominally agree with her. I mean, she doesn't agree with the things I just laid out there, but that's neither here nor there. Are there some issues? Like, you know, do you care about the ruthless treatment of refugees at the border? Actually, no, she probably doesn't, but like anything, you could use your status for any issue to put it front and center, but instead of doing that, all you have is nothing but vitriol and smears for people that you don't like, and it's really disgusting. And by the way, you know, I've, I've disagreed with Tulsi pretty strongly recently on a variety of issues. She kind of awkwardly defended Ellen hanging out with war criminal George W. Bush. Um, she... Pretty clearly, if, if you're willing to be intellectually honest about it, backed off of Medicare for All 
and is doing the language of, oh, if you like your private plan, you can keep it. If you have a union plan, if you have an employer plan, you can keep that if you want to keep it. Well, then that's not Medicare for all. If your approach doesn't include banning duplicative insurance, then you don't support Medicare for all because that's not a single payer. You're saying, I still want um, you know, the for-profit health insurance companies to have a certain market share and still control the market to some extent. That's not single payer. The only kind of private insurance that's okay is supplemental. If you're talking about anything beyond supplemental, that's not single-payer Medicare for all, period. So she's backed off of that. I have, so, I have many criticisms of her, many, and I'll continue to voice those criticisms when I think they're merited. But the idea that she's somehow a Russian asset or a Putin puppet because she's not a warmonger like Hillary Clinton, she's not for every interventionist regime change war, I mean, that just shows you how intellectually bankrupt Hillary Clinton is. That if anybody deviates slightly from that narrative, from the consensus in Washington, D.C., which is a neocon consensus, well, then obviously something's got to be wrong with them. They must be compromised. Because it can't be that, you know, you thought about this issue objectively and you realize that, oh, my God, all of these things we're doing are terrible. And, in fact, it makes this, the problem worse, the problem that we say we're solving, which is defeating terrorists. It actually makes that problem worse. Couldn't be that, no. It must be that if you don't support all, all these wars, that you're a Putin puppet. And it also must be that I will say that you're a spoiler because you're going to run third party, even though you're not going to run third party. And even though if you did, you probably wouldn't even be a spoiler. But it doesn't matter. Smears don't need to make sense. Even She said repeatedly, I'm not going to run third party. It doesn't matter. I, I think she's, she's being groomed by Russia to do just that. And Hillary said the same thing with Jill Stein. By the way, it's a misnomer that Jill Stein cost Hillary Clinton the election. Simply not true. The math does not add up. They have very clear exit polling. They asked the people who voted for Jill Stein, oh, like, who would you have voted for if Jill Stein wasn't in the race? And there weren't enough Green Party voters that would have flipped to Democratic um, to hand the election to Hillary Clinton. It's just simply not true. But, again, what do you see here from Hillary Clinton? It's a pattern. The pattern is, I'll blame everybody but myself. Every now and then she nominally says, oh, yeah, sure, I'll take credit for all the things that I didn't do that were, that were wrong and blah, blah, blah. But it always comes with a by the way. It always comes with a but. And the but is always the thing with the emphasis. And uh, the Russians, uh, you know, uh, James Comey, uh, Jill Stein. And now already they're going after Tulsi preemptively. And anybody who deviates from, you know, the standard line and – Tulsi's theory, by the way, is that the reason why Hillary Clinton despises her is because she resigned from the DNC very famously in 2016 in a high-profile way because she realized they were screwing Bernie Sanders, so she resigned and endorsed Bernie Sanders. Tulsi says she thinks those are the origins of Hillary hating her. I think that's certainly part of it, but you know, I actually think that the serious thing is, is bigger. To her, and I think they use that as further evidence again with, with the phone kicking off. I think they use that in their mind as evidence that obviously something's wrong with her and she's compromised or something. When out here in the real world, you guys know because we've talked about it endlessly. The polls show the American people don't want to be involved there. They don't want to be involved there at all, myself included. And so what happens? Well, if it, and you would know this if you had some you know name recognition in the politics sphere, but I've been accused of it too. I've been accused, oh, my God, Russian asset, Putin puppet, yada, yada. And they pull up, like, tweets of me saying anti-war stuff in regards to Syria. Yeah, because I believe 
the anti-war position as the correct position. I, believe, I don't believe in illegal and offensive wars against countries that didn't attack us. But they pull it up and they're like, aha! <laughs> what do you mean? How silly are you? But that's where we are. And the dominant strain of thought in the Democratic Party, this establishment-centrist, corporatist uh, you know, line of thought, is Alex Jones level now. And they're willing to say stuff like this based on no evidence. By the way, now everybody's come out and they've defended Tulsi. And I'm sure Hillary Clinton is secretly fuming behind the scenes. But you even had Mayor Pete even came out and defended Tulsi. Beto O'Rourke came out and defended Tulsi. And then you had, of course, the more anti-establishment candidates who, who did it and did it quicker. Um, Andrew Yang came out and defended Tulsi. Marianne Williamson came out and defended Tulsi. You had uh, one of Bernie Sanders' top surrogates, Nina Turner, very publicly on Twitter, defended Tulsi Gabbard. Some people are saying, okay, Bernie should call... Bernie should do the same thing. I mean, okay, whether he does it or doesn't do it, you know, it is what it is, but we know what he believes. Everybody knows what he believes. And my guess is he's going to be asked a direct question on that in the near future, and he's going to give a solid answer. Um, Because even people who have one-tenth the political courage that Bernie Sanders has were like, come on, this is obvious. You don't do that. And I think the thing that Tulsi has, which gives her that extra layer of immunity here is that she's a current major in the U.S. Army. U.S. A, a current major in the U.S. Army and a congresswoman for seven years. And this is how she's treated. And by the way, what happened to the cries of unity? All these centers always like to scream about unity, and then they turn around and accuse people of being, you know, assets of a foreign government, being groomed by adversarial foreign governments. It's really embarrassing, and it's really pathetic. She has, Hillary Clinton has absolutely nothing to add to the national discourse in the era of Trump. In the era of Trump, there's nothing of substance that she has to add to the conversation. So what do you do? I don't know. Lash out against all my political opponents, smear them, all that stuff. And here we are. So, um, embarrassing. And in a weird way, this might actually help. Tulsi Gabbard. Did I? I don't even. I don't even think I read the the tweet. Wow, uh, what a lapse of judgment there. What a mistake. I accidentally skipped over it. Here's what Tulsi said. Great, thank you, Hillary Clinton, uh, the queen of warmongers, embodiment of corruption and personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party for so long, have finally come out from behind the curtain. From the day I announced my candidacy, there has been a concerted campaign to destroy my reputation. We wondered who was behind it and why. Now we know. It was always you, through your proxies and powerful allies in corporate media and the war machine, afraid of the threat that I pose. It's now clear that this primary is between you and me. Don't cowardly hide behind your proxies. Join the race directly. So that's what she said specifically. I love the fact that she called her the queen of warmongers and the embodiment of corruption and the personification of rot that has sickened the Democratic Party for so long. All of that stuff is totally true. And finally, you have people in the Democratic Party directly calling out Hillary Clinton, and she's touching that third rail, and she doesn't care, and I respect that, because Hillary, she's a relic of the past, and she belongs there. She lost to the most easily beatable person in American history. She lost. I don't know why she shows her face in public at all anymore, ever, ever. So credit to Tulsi for that. I will say that last part is weird, and I don't understand that. The, oh, it's clear that it's now a primary between you and me. 
you know, Tulsi, I love you, but you're pulling at like 2%. You can't, that's not a thing. You're, oh, it's between you and me. What? What does that mean? No, you're pulling really low. That makes no sense. There's a lot of people who are pulling ahead of you. So it just, that's, it's like a weird attempt to take this thing and try to elevate it further to try to, you know, force yourself into a higher position in the primary. I don't understand that. You could have done without that. Um, but it is possible that the whole, like, prodding her to join the race is a, a, a chess move because if Hillary jumps in the race, who does that benefit? Bernie Sanders. Because Hillary Clinton, the poll show, she pulls more support. She pulls pretty much all of her support from the Joe Bidens and even the Elizabeth Warrens, believe it or not, even though they're not very close ideologically, a lot of former Hillary people went to Elizabeth Warren. So basically people would flee Biden, people would flee Warren, and people would flee maybe, you know, the cloud boot jars, however many supporters she has, the Cory Bookers, even the Mayor Pete's. So she would pull from everybody else except Bernard. So that's, so if she jumps in, it actually would benefit Bernie. I don't know, maybe Tulsi's th- seeing the chessboard and thinking of that, but it strikes me more as she's, that may be accidental, that it would be a burst to Bernie and she's, it would be a boost to Bernie and she's calling for that. Um, but either way, I like the fact that she's directly calling her out as a warmonger and corrupt and, and things like that. It's about time somebody started saying it from inside the house. You know, I'm outside the house. I've been saying it for a long time. A lot of us outside the house have been saying it for a long time. But she's in D.C. She's part of this club. Not, not part of the elite corrupt club, but she's part of the, you know, the elite class of politicians. She's in Congress. So she's part of that D.C. machine. And it's very rare anybody calls her out directly inside the Democratic Party. And um, that's unfortunate. <laughs> so it's great that she did it, and people should rally around her for that reason. Um, what's really interesting, guys, is in the fallout, I didn't see a lot of – obviously MSNBC is all in on pro-Hillary Clinton nonsense because they're hacks. But the other Democratic candidates didn't even really wag their finger at, at uh, Tulsi and say, ah, don't call her a warmonger, don't call her corrupt. And I would have expected that they didn't do that. They really all were just kind of like, Hillary shouldn't say that without evidence. That's kind of crazy. So, you know, hey, maybe I saw somebody tweeted like, oh, maybe this is the straw that broke the camel's back. And finally we'll put an end to this like McCarthyite nonsense that's been floating around since the election. And I don't know, it's possible that that's the case because it's like a forceful denunciation, like a how dare you, sir, moment where it's like, stop playing around, stop being ridiculous, this is nonsense. Maybe it does have that impact, I don't know, but either way, it's only a positive thing that she was directly called a warmonger and corrupt and basically told, like, get out of the way. Get out of the way. I mean, Hillary Clinton's time has passed. That's really obvious. Um, So she's so irrelevant, she has to kind of force her way into the news cycle in the grossest way possible, because, of course, she could never do it through policy and actually caring about fixing the country. Think of all the times Bernie was in the news cycle post the 2016 election. It was all like he's going to strike with Amazon workers and Verizon workers and Disney workers. And like he was always on the front line fighting for some sort of positive change, you know, trying to stop the genocide in Yemen. It was always policy related. Now, I get it. You could say, hey, man, he's a senator. Hillary Clinton was no longer in politics after the election loss. That's true. But a lot of that stuff is not like part of your Senate duties. A lot of that stuff was 
when he was marching on picket lines. She could do that if she wanted to. She doesn't want to. She doesn't want to. And she never talks about policy. It's always just comes out, personal attack smears, and then she goes back away. So allow me to say, go away and stay away because you're not helping anybody. Okay, next. Both Michael Moore and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez endorsed Bernie Sanders at his rally in Queens, New York a few days ago. So here's AOC in her own words why she's endorsing him. You're going to see a little clip from the event when she said something I think is really important, and then you're also going to see the video that she released on Twitter explaining why she endorsed Bernie. Unconditional 
universal guaranteed advanced standard of living in the United States of America. No ifs, no ands, no buts. No matter who you are, where you come from, what you're born into, we should have a society that guarantees 21st century economic human rights, that introduces democracy to the workplace, where people feel protected and safe at work, where they feel honored and dignified at home, and that every person has actual power in the United States of America. We need to have a revolution of working class people, and it needs to be multiracial, multigendered, multigenerational. Our future is not going to get better unless we demand it and unless we work for it. And when you talk to Bernie, he doesn't talk about making a movement so that he can get elected. He talks about his campaign as part of a mass movement in America. And that's the kind of leadership that I think we need right now. How awesome is that? I mean, it's, it's really great. Um, so the telling part is how she says, Hey, listen, behind the scenes, you guys have no idea. No idea. They will try every single sleazy trick imaginable to try to get you to fall in line. You know, the idea is, hey, once you win, once you win an election, okay, now, now it's time to get serious. I know you may have been out there on the campaign trail saying, you know, we can improve people's lives by doing, like, basic policies that are really intelligent. But that doesn't play here. You might want to drop that right now. That's not going to happen. And so look at how they've tried to kowtow AOC and the other Justice Democrats. Look at what they've done to Ilhan Omar. She calls out the influence of big money lobbyists. She's immediately accused of being an anti-Semite. How many times has Nancy Pelosi, the leader of the Democrats, given an interview and scoffed at AOC's popularity and said, like, no, no, this isn't a model moving forward. The district was, you know, this was going to happen. The district, the demographics of the district made this happen. And every way imaginable trying to undermine her, every way imaginable trying to downplay her. What's awesome about this video is that she's letting you know in no uncertain terms, I know. I know that's what they're doing. Because a criticism I have had, and many other people had, was, hey, listen, I know you're a nice person, and I know that now you feel like you got to go along to get along and whatnot, but I've always been on the team of embracing the fact that the left, the Democratic Party, is in a civil war. Yes. We're not going to win the Civil War if we don't even acknowledge it's happening. We're not going to win the Civil War if we don't acknowledge it's happening. So we all have to acknowledge there's a, a battle going on right now for the soul of the Democratic Party. And just be clear about who's on what side. And so I always get a little bit frustrated when there, whenever there was like an article where she would say something deferential to Nancy Pelosi. I would always be like, oh, no, does she not get it? Does she not understand it? But this is a clear this is a clear sign. She absolutely gets it. Because think about it, guys. Bernie Sanders just had a heart attack not too long ago. There's not a single analyst in Washington, D.C. who would have told AOC, do this. 
everyone would have been screaming from the top of their lungs, don't do it. Don't do it. They all think he's going to uh, peter out and become irrelevant and, you know, he'll be useless and you're going to tank your own political career by hitching your wagon to this guy. She doesn't care what they say because she cares about the issues. And so with Bernie Sanders leading on these issues, and I'm sorry, just being better on these issues than the other candidates, she realized, oh, this is a no-brainer. Now, there was reporting in Politico, and we spoke about it. They had multiple conversations, AOC did, with Bernie's team. And um, Bernie's serious commitment to the Green New Deal, I think, was the thing that pushed her over over the top. His commitment to the Green New Deal, you know, she was just talking about workplace democracy there. That's worker-owned co-ops. That's, now you're flirting with a little bit of a post-capitalist philosophy when you talk about that. And Elizabeth Warren, even though she's solid, she's not in any way post-capitalist, not even a little bit. She's barely social democratic. I don't even think you could consider her social democratic. She's just an actual reform democrat. She's a reform democrat, I think, is the best way to talk about her. So Bernie has it on policy, and it was recognized. Now, we spoke about with Ilhan Omar. She cares deeply about foreign policy. Bernie's foreign policy is way above um, Elizabeth Warren. So Ilhan Omar endorsed Bernie as well. You know, there's reports that Rashida Tlaib will do so as well in the near future, although she's denying it, but there's an event that they have together, Bernie Sanders and Rashida Tlaib. So, um, but either way, she knows the dynamic in D.C. She's aware of it. She knows they're trying to kowtow her. She knows they're trying to, like, talk her down. She knows they're trying to you know, kind of diminish her. And they try to make you abandon the working class by any means necessary. And her point is powerful. Her point is, here's this guy who's been here for decades. And as Nina Turner says, she used this word in her speech, she says he's unflinching in his support of regular people. Unflinching. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think about it. There's a famous story from back in the day that we've told on this show before, but I think it's really interesting. There were two people in Washington, D.C. that the lobbyists don't even try to bother talking to. They don't even try because they know what the answer is going to be. The other one might surprise you a little bit, but um, the first one will not surprise you. One of them is Bernie Sanders. They don't even bother. They know he's going to say piss off. The other one is Ron Paul, believe it or not. Which, I mean, give him credit. We disagree with him on 50% of the issues strongly, but he is principled in his libertarian beliefs. Like, he actually has an ideology and a philosophy, and he's sticking by it. And so the lobbyists would skip right over him. The lobbyists would skip right over Social Democrat Bernie Sanders because they go, I, it, it doesn't matter. We can't get him to budge. He's not going to do our bidding. He's not going to do our bidding. What do you want me to do? He's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's got his ideas. He's going to fight for them. He wants Medicare for all. He wants the, the minimum wage to be a living wage. I mean, what are we going to do? There's nothing we could do. And she realizes the courage that that takes. Because when you're in an environment, when everybody around you is doing something, I mean, that's everybody in D.C. around Bernie is, like, corrupt. And they look at him like he's weird for not being corrupt. But he stood his ground because he's principled. She recognizes that. How amazing is it? And this is what we've done with Justice Democrats, and this is what others are trying to do as well. How awesome is it that we've now cloned Bernie Sanders and we're actually sending him to Washington? Guys, that was the whole idea. As a co-founder of Justice Democrats, I could tell you, because I was in the room for the founding. I'm one of the founders. 
that's part of the, the part of the idea is that she also references the oh my god all these people now taking no corporate PAC money exactly that was one of our that was our biggest litmus test you cannot take corporate PAC money because that is corrupting by definition we won't let you be corrupted it's that and the other idea is get people like Bernie Sanders that's what AOC is that's what Ilhan Omar is that's what Rokan is although he was already there to be fair Pramila Jayapal there, there are differences around the edges, and I'll still criticize them when I think they're wrong, as I've done before, and I'll do again. I mean, it, it is what it is. We're all human beings. We disagree on some things, but the core of it is true. The core of it's the same. The core of it is they're uncorrupted, and they actually care, and they're trying to fix the system. And this endorsement, I think, proves that in no uncertain terms. Shout out to Michael Moore as well for, endor- for endorsing Bernie Sanders. Listen, somebody was asking me over the weekend, is this a turning point in, in the race? I don't know, and you don't know, and we can never say. We have to wait and and see it unfold. Um, But I will say that the fallout from this was really good because you had the debate. He did a solid performance at the debate. It's fair to say, oh, he didn't go directly after Elizabeth Warren, so he could have done better. I think that's a fair point. But outside of that, incredibly solid performance in the debate. Everybody recognized that. Even in corporate media, they were saying he did really well. And then also... Immediately after, that's when we got the news about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez endorsing Bernie Sanders. So that also kind of dominated the news cycle a little bit. And then, guys, mainstream media was forced to admit, and I've seen it in multiple articles now, they're forced to admit, yeah, you know, maybe the whole Warren thing, like, no, Bernie still has the heart of the base, and Bernie is still the core of the base, and Bernie is still the movement candidate. They're admitting it. They're admitting it. So it isn't even necessarily that the endorsements on their own matter that much, because I've always been in the camp of endorsements are not as important. Um, there are degrees, but the real thing here that I think has more of an impact is the reverberating effect when all of the media is forced to then run with the narrative, which is the correct narrative. And that narrative is he's still the movement candidate. He's still the leader of the left. He's still the one that has all the support of the multiracial you know, working class background coalition, they're forced to write those stories. And then that has the, you know, the effect where it echoes for the next couple of days. And that helps solidify the narrative. Listen, the only thing, here's the thing that you can't, that would never work. You can't have an indifferent media. You can't have an apathetic media that just doesn't cover you because then you're guaranteed to lose. Like the media, when they just pretend you don't exist, then you're going to lose. You're going to lose. What does work is either, if you get positive press, positive press that's based on something real, like this, that's based on something real, or you get negative press, but the arguments they use are just total trash. So Bernie's having a little bit of both of those things happen. There's a lot of negative press, which is total garbage, which everybody recognizes as garbage, which only helps them. And there's positive press, which is accurate, like with this endorsement, which helps them because it helps solidify the narrative. The only kind of press, like if they're indifferent, you're screwed. And if they're going after you and using good arguments when they go after you, you're screwed. But thankfully, Bernie's got the positive aspect of it. All arguments against him are terrible, so they help bolster him. And the positive stuff, like this AOC endorsement, does help solidify the narrative that we like. So I think it does help. I think it is a step in the right direction. I think that he's persevering through incredibly difficult odds, and he deserves massive credit for that as does AOC, as does Ilhan Omar, as does Michael Moore, as is everybody who recognizes what this moment in history is. 
It's not time to sit on the sidelines. It's time to get involved. It's time to do everything you can to get a real, a real agent of change elected. There's no milk toast tweaks around the edges, no half measures, none of that stuff. It's let's get change to help people full stop. And if you get in the way, I'm going to defeat you. All right, next. This next video from Bernie Sanders' rally over the weekend is amazing. Um, she absolutely torches Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. Um, and I forgot to mention this in the other segment we did, but this rally broke a record. Elizabeth Warren's record was 20,000 people at one of her rallies. Trump was a little bit above that number, I think. Bernie Sanders shattered it. He was like 26,800. Then they had to turn people away from a park. There's a lot of open area in a park. They had to turn people away because they had 26,800, and there were over 30,000 total who really wanted to, to be there. So we got a movement candidate here. People are recognizing that. It was an amazing rally, amazing endorsements. Here's one of my favorite moments. This is Nina Turner low-key laying into everybody not named Bernie Sanders in the race.
God damn. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, that was so good. Oh, she was on fire. I'm officially stealing the come on, somebody. <laughs> oh, that was so good. I'm ready to run through a wall after listening to that stuff. Okay. Um, she is taking shots there, and they are brilliant. So first she says, you know, he didn't sit on the sidelines when it got hard. That's a direct reference to Elizabeth Warren, because in 2016, Bernie Sanders famously went to Elizabeth Warren and kind of begged Elizabeth Warren to primary Hillary Clinton, because Bernie knows Hillary Clinton's record and what she represents, and he wanted somebody further left to rep that position. So he went to Elizabeth Warren and asked, can you please do this? And she said no. So Bernie's like, all right, I got to do what I got to do. And that, by the way, that verifies exactly what I've been saying about Bernie for the longest time. It's not even that he wants to be president. He has no ego. It's not about that. He actually wants to fix the problems in the country. He wants to fix the problems. He's like, oh, God, nobody else is going to do it. I guess I got to step up. I guess I got to do it. That's Bernie Sanders. She's directly calling out Elizabeth Warren low-key there. Oh, he didn't sit on the sidelines when it got hard. Oh, Nina, I love it. Uh, Then she says, we got a lot of copies running around. Oh, (laughs) we all know what that means. That's 100%, you know, geared towards Elizabeth Warren. Because, yes, she's Bernie Light is what she's been called for the longest time because she is. She takes Bernie Sanders, his ideas, waters them down until they're more shitty, and then goes, good enough? Is that good enough? No, no, I'm not. I, I don't know why you'd want the copy when you could have the original, baby. That's what she said. <laughs> I love it. Um, then there's only one candidate, candidate who raises money from the people and tells the multimillionaires and multibillionaires to kick rocks. Again, that's low-key calling out Elizabeth Warren, high-key calling out Joe Biden. But Elizabeth Warren, she did that, you know, that trick that we've talked about on this show where she raised money for her Senate campaign and then funneled that money to her presidential campaign. And the money that she raised in the Senate campaign was from big donors. Now, Bernie funneled money too, but it wasn't, he didn't raise it from big donors originally. So there's a giant difference there. So the funneling is not the problem. Nobody's really arguing with that. The funneling is, okay, the problem is the source of where you raise the money from. And by the way, she's now flipped back and forth multiple times. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to do unilateral determinant. I'm going to raise big money in the general. And then when she got pushback on that, she flipped. And all of a sudden it became, oh, no, I'm not going to raise big money in the general, but I will help the party raise big money. Okay, well, then we're gonna, you're going to do the old Clinton trick, which is raise money for the party. The party funnels it back to you. That's what's going to happen. She's calling it out. She sees this. Um, and then she says one candidate who's been marching with workers um, – and then the two most direct call-outs for people who follow this stuff closely. Again, it's all low-key. It's all kind of subtle. But if you follow this stuff closely, you know what she's saying. Uh, she said, we got people talking about a framework. That's a reference to a story from like two or three weeks ago where Elizabeth Warren was asked a question about Medicare for All. 
And she goes, no, 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 so Medicare for All is just a framework. And, like, we'll fill out the details. And no, that's not, no. It's a very specific direct bill that's laid out in great detail that explains exactly how we get this done. So if you're saying it's a framework, how committed are you really to the bill that you signed your name up for? Nails are on that. But the best one. He's not voting for President Trump's wars. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's, exact, that's the exact line of argument that I've been screaming for Bernie to go with. Because, you know, he, what he tried to do in the recent interview, I forget who it was with, but it doesn't matter, is he said she calls herself a capitalist to her bones. I'm not a capitalist to my bones. That's the argument that he went with. Now, people who are already on the left hear that and they love it. And they go, ooh, nice, I like it, sick burn. But I cautioned against that argument, and here's why. 65% of the country still favors capitalism. Now, when you go issue for issue, of course, the American people are significantly to the left. But labels, they don't really know labels, and don't get too married to labels. So when you go all in on that angle of it, it doesn't, it doesn't pack a punch. It doesn't hit. It doesn't pierce through. I'm a big fan of you have to use visceral arguments that go right, in, right into your mind. You know how when some people talk, you sit there and you listen, and it's like you hear the Charlie Brown, and it just doesn't land? You have to decidedly do the opposite. And the way you do the opposite is you focus on direct arguments that go right to the heart. And there's no room for interpreting it any other way than this is bad. So in the case of Elizabeth Warren, what do you do? Exactly what Nina Turner just did right there. Oh, really? Well, you're going to act like we're equally progressive? She voted for Trump's wars. Game, set, match. Game, set, match. She voted to give Trump a massive increase in his military budget, a military that he's using to do illegal and offensive wars around the world. You can't vote to give this lunatic madman an increase in a military budget and then turn around and act like, but I'm so progressive. Foreign policy is the area where the president has the most direct influence because the president's the commander-in-chief. There's not as many layers of bureaucracy when it comes to what you decide on foreign policy. You voted to give Donald Trump an increase in his military budget? You agree with Trump on his warmongering and you're going to turn around and act like you're in the same league as this guy? Please, please. So she absolutely destroyed uh, Elizabeth Warren there. But she also went after Biden, but that was easier. That's easier because he makes it so much easier. But Elizabeth uh, or uh, Anita Turner is really showing the way there, showing the roadmap. This is how you go after Elizabeth Warren. Now, some people went after her on Twitter, but totally ineffectual, these people who are trying to go after Nina Turner. Because the response was, and it's brilliant, yeah, but I'm stating the facts, so if you have a problem with what I'm saying, maybe your problem isn't really with me, it's with the person who did the things that I'm accurately saying they did. So you can't get mad at me, get mad at the person who did the things that then allowed me to call it out, because they did it. They did it. The problem's not me calling out, the problem is that they did it. Boom. You can't, you can't lose this debate. You can't lose this argument. How are you going to lose that argument? How are you going to lose that argument? Another point that I like to bring up in the context of Elizabeth Warren, is she said, allow me to make a spirited defense of Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin is seriously the most conservative Democrat in the Senate. If you say, let me make a spirited defense of Joe Manchin, I hope you understand what that means. That means we're not getting any of our actual left-wing legislation done. Because you're going to have to be honest that he's an enemy of the movement when you're in the White House. 
because the only way you're going to get anything passed is to defeat him. Either make him fall in line and do the right thing and vote the right way, or let him know we're going to primary you and we're going to win. And I'll support your, your opponent, and I'll do rallies in West Virginia. Bernie has already committed to doing exactly that. What's Elizabeth Warren doing? <laughs> let me make a spirited defense of this man. Well, then congratulations on getting bupkis done. You don't get anything done. So great job there from Nina Turner. We're starting to make the distinction now, and it's, it's clear. The arguments are now officially being made, and this is a great beginning. We'll see if Bernie starts to incorporate some of this stuff moving forward. Listen, man, in a world that made sense, it would eventually come down to Warren and Bernie. And then when it's just Warren and Bernie, you're going to have to flesh out the differences and then when that's the case, you better come correct. You better come correct. And I'll give you the list of stuff at the time, but Nina Turner is definitely on the right track, and as always, she delivers it brilliantly. In 2016, when Bernie Sanders ran for president, he was accused of running a campaign that was, simply put, too white. The argument was, oh, he's got the Bernie bros. They're all, you know, the argument is they all look like me. They're all young white dudes, and they're obnoxious, and who cares about them? And, you know, you're not going to win with a coalition like that, and why would you even want to attract those kinds of people? It's too white. His, his campaign is not diverse enough, and he didn't appeal to minorities enough. Now, this is the argument that they made. Now, let me be clear that at the time, that was already BS. It is true that Bernie Sanders struggled with black voters in the primary, particularly in the South. But that doesn't mean that those voters didn't also like him, because they did. The poll showed he has a pretty high favorability rating among black voters. You could argue the problem was turnout. So the, the campaign did not turn them out as much as they needed to. But his favorability rating with black voters is really high. In fact, his the worst group that he polls with is white men. So the argument is, oh, my God, he's too beloved by this group of people that, you know, statistically likes him the least. Makes no sense, but again, establishment smears don't have to make sense. That's not the point. The point is to smear. So it doesn't matter what the details are. They're not trying to be specific. They're not trying to be correct. They're trying to smear. So anyway, that was the argument last time. That was the narrative. The Bernie bros, they're all, they're too white. It's not diverse enough. He needs to diversify his campaign. Let's stop being silly. Now, apart from the voters, like, that's even absurd at the campaign level because we know his, like, Nina Turner is, his, one of his top surrogates, Ro Khanna, one of his top surrogates, Cornell West, Killer Mike. And this isn't like, th these are people who love Bernie and were attracted to Bernie's message. It's not like they're trying to go around and cherry pick people of color. No, he actually believes in a multiracial working class coalition. That's what he believes in. Well, now it's gotten a little too inconvenient for the media, the reality of the situation. 
So they have a different narrative that they're going to run with. Check it out on CNN. There is no doubting his fundraising. There is no doubting the depth of his support across the country. But is it in the teens? Can he get into 20s? How do you win? That will certainly help him. But it will also, I think, Senator Klobuchar is coming in to join us now, we have some of the other candidates say, wait a minute. But, you know, is this too far left? Is this too uncompromising? Is it too urban? Is it too Internet? Is it too far left? Is it too uncompromising? Is it too, quote, urban? You do know what that's code word for. Is it too black? Is it too brown? Is it too diverse now? Guys, I'm sorry, but this is irrefutable proof that the media will attack Bernie Sanders no matter what. They will nitpick him to death. Before, it was too white, the Bernie bros. He's got a white coalition. Oh, please. He's got to make inroads with communities of color. This time, it's, it's too urban. There's too many communities of color in his campaign. He needs to be more white. Just so you know, just so you know, just so you know, it was never about an actual criticism. It was always, always, always about smearing. This was their reaction to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and reportedly, but not officially yet, Rashida Tlaib endorsing Bernie Sanders. This was their reaction. Now, thankfully, the rest of the media has been pretty fair, actually, in accurately categorizing this and saying, like, yeah, this does kind of show that he's still the leader. But this is quite a moment from CNN. Honestly, that's embarrassing. And, you know, dare I use the word, but I think it's kind of true in this instance. That's kind of racist. Is it too urban? What does that mean? So they don't count because they're people of color? What does that mean? What does that mean? Bernie Sanders has always been committed to building a multiracial, multi-background, working-class coalition. And that's exactly what he's doing. And by the way, Bernie never said, and nobody on the left has ever said, working-class means white. Nobody ever said. The media assumes that, and they run with it. And so whenever you talk about the working class, they assume it's all like white dudes in coal mines or white dudes in factories. But we never said that. The multiracial working-class coalition people of all skin colors, all backgrounds, all races, all religions. That's what it is. It's regular people from all backgrounds. That's always what we meant. But they always took that and strawmanned and act like, see, you're only talking about white people. We never said that. You said that. We never said that. And so now you have the total embodiment of his life's work here. You have a guy who's unapologetically running on the policies that the American people favor and that would help everybody. And all they have to argue against it in such an ineffectual way is to nitpick the diversity characteristics of the people who are supporting him. That says a lot, doesn't it? That says a lot. Too white. No, 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 too urban now. Too white, too black, too brown. It's almost like no matter what, they're going to attack him.
All right, let me do one more, and then we'll take a break. Told you I got a long show today, and I wasn't kidding. So Donald Trump announced that the 2020 G7 summit would be held at his own golf resort, uh, Doral, in Florida. So after a backlash, he tweeted the following. I thought I was doing something very good for our country by using Trump National Doral in Miami for hosting the G7 leaders. It is big, grand, on hundreds of acres next to Miami International Airport, has tremendous ballrooms and meeting rooms, and each delegation would have, he continues, its own 50 to 70 unit buildings, would set up better than other alternatives. I announced that I would be willing to do it at no profit or, if legally possible, at zero cost to the USA. But as usual, the hostile media and their Democrat partners went crazy. Therefore, based on both media and Democrat craze and irrational hostility, I will no longer consider Trump National Doral Miami as the host site for the G7 in 2020. We will begin the search for another site, including the possibility of Camp David, immediately. Thank you. So um, he announced that it's happening at the G7. Then about a week later, he was forced to go in the other direction and say, no, we're not going to do it there. Now, this is, there's a positive takeaway from this story. The positive takeaway is, if you make enough noise, and if your beef is specific enough, you can get him to back down. And that's what happened. So everybody was against him when he announced this. He even lost Republicans. He even lost, you know, his little sycophantic followers in Congress. And all of them, one by one, they came out and said, I don't know about all that, dog. I don't know about all that. Because stop and reflect on what this would really mean. Let's say we had a President Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton decided oh, we're going to take a Clinton property and we're going to host, you know, the G7 summit there. Donald Trump would be on that like white on rice. Donald Trump would never let that go. He would call it corrupt. He would say it's obviously corrupt. He would say it's self-dealing. And he would be right. Jimmy Carter was forced to sell his peanut farm because not even that he was taking foreign bribes through his peanut farm, but the potential was there that a foreign government can swoop in, funnel him some money through the peanut farm. So sorry, too much of a risk. You've got to sell your beloved peanut farm, Jimmy Carter. And he did. Now, how does that make sense if Donald Trump gets to keep his D.C. hotel, which foreign governments are funneling him money through? And how does that make sense when he gets to have properties all around the world, including this one in Doral, Miami, which, by the way, is absolutely bleeding money? And I got news for you. If you really thought he was going to do it at zero cost, I have a bridge to sell you. This is Donald Trump 101. He did this. He was screaming about how I'm going to donate to our amazing troops, our amazing veterans. And then he just didn't do it. And then like a month later, the media ran a story that was like, you said you were going to give a million dollars. You didn't give a million dollars. We checked. They said no. And then he, then he angrily went and like got a check and cut it. And he was like, fake news media is being fake news. And they don't tell you that I actually did give them their million dollars. You did it after the story said you lied and didn't do it. He's been doing this his whole life, guys. He goes out there and says, I'm going to do this amazing thing. And then he doesn't do it. But he already got the round of press that gave him credit for saying he was going to do the amazing thing. 
He is a liar. He is a charlatan. He's a con man. He's a fraud. I need you to understand that. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. It's documented. It's happened time and time and time again. He promises to do something, and he just doesn't do it, and nobody follows up. The one time somebody did follow up, they realized he was full of it. The same thing with this. Oh, I'm going to do it at cost. You're not going to do it at cost. You're trying to funnel yourself millions of dollars. He's already doing it with his property, Trump Turnberry. I believe it's in Scotland. He's already doing it over there. He had all the secret service. Oh, we're going to divert you, and you're going to stay at the Trump property. What the? Because why? They're trying to funnel in money. That time through U.S. taxpayers. I guess it would be the same in this instance, but it's a, it's a, it's a mix. He gets it sometimes from foreign governments. Saudi Arabia is paying him through his D.C. hotel. He's getting U.S. tax dollars through, the, through Trump Turnberry. He was trying to do the same thing with Doral. But this self-dealing went a little too far, even for the Republicans, because it was so brazen. And by the way, this is an issue where if it were to go to court, he 100% would lose. So he's trying to save himself a headache here, and he said, okay, I'm not going to do it. But you make enough noise, and you do it directly, and he's forced to kowtow. Remember this for the future. But you got to understand something, guys. The lesson is it has to be specific. Like, oh, he's doing this thing. Everybody says that thing bad. It was so overwhelming that he was forced to back off of it. But you can learn from this. You can learn from this, and you could use it for good. Imagine if there was a giant backlash starting today about still being in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was from everybody. It was top down. It was the media. It was the people. And it was even the politicians. The politicians would never join us on this, by the way. Only like Rand Paul and Bernie and a couple of people. But imagine if it was that oh, so overwhelming. He would pull out of Iraq and Afghanistan tomorrow if that happened. Tomorrow. But he's got to feel the immediate pressure. And so now you know. Now you know. If the, and this is, I could have told you this is how politics works. That if you, if it's enough pressure and it's overwhelming and it's super specific, that's the other thing. It can't be airy-fairy. It's got to be specific. You can't do like with the Women's March where the, it's like, yeah, Trump won and we're generally mad and so we're going to march and it's the Women's March and we're marching for women. What, be specific. If you're specific, you actually might make a change. So, but they have to do that. And now the final thing is that's how you really make change, but... I've got to give you one more story about Trump in regards to this resort because it really does say so much about it. Donald Trump is a big golfer. He loves golf. That's some very rare thing him and I have in common is that I love golf and he loves golf. Um, but he always wanted to own a golf course and have a PGA Tour event at that golf course because he's like a kid in a candy store around the PGA Tour. All those pro golfers, he looks up to them. He loves them. He thinks they're so cool. He's amazed at how good they are. So... Little kid in the candy store, Donald Trump, was getting rejected time and time again by the PGA Tour. He owns these golf courses. He thinks they're awesome golf courses. I've actually played one in the past. The funny thing is, the, the main thing I, could, I take away from what his golf courses look like, and I'm not kidding about this, they are incredibly fake looking, just like him, just like his appearance. It honestly looks like he was walking around outside and goes, I want a hill over there. I want a hill over there. I want... I want, this is how, exactly how I want this to look. And it's like, in order to make a good golf course, you have to use the natural topography of the land. If you could beautifully use what's art, the palette that's already there, those are the golf courses that look amazing. He does the exact opposite. He manufactures every little thing about it, and it looks terrible, okay? So he wanted to do business with PGA Tour. They kept rejecting him. So what did Trump do? He went to a property to a golf course that they have a PGA Tour event at every single year. It's Doral in Miami. They have an event at the course called the Blue Monster. 
So he goes there. They're struggling financially. He buys the course. Voila. Now the PGA Tour is forced to do business with him. Because they go there every year. It's a recurring place that they have a long-standing deal with. So they didn't want to do business with him at his own courses. They knew his business reputation. They wanted to avoid him like the plague. They know he stiffs people. They know he went bankrupt six times. They know he's a mess. So he tried to avoid him like crazy. What does he do? Weasels his way in by buying a course that they play at every year, and then he goes, well, now you have to do business with him. That story says so much about Donald Trump. So much. But thankfully at least with this story involving the G7 and being forced to abandon it at his property, at least we have that good news to share. All right, quick break. When we come back, Donald Trump flipping yet again on a campaign promise of his, and then we got Mayor Pete doubling down on his objective shittiness. Stay right there. We'll be right back with all of that and more.
Before Politicon, there will not be a show on Thursday. I will be a very busy chap at that point in time. Um, so yeah, there will be no show on Thursday, and you will see me at Politicon. Hope you guys can actually physically join me there, because that'll be awesome. So let's continue. Donald Trump, when nobody was looking decided to flip yet again on a campaign promise of his. Time says the following. While President Donald Trump insists he's bringing home Americans from endless wars in the Mideast, his Pentagon chief says all U.S. troops leaving Syria will go to western Iraq and the American military will continue operations against the Islamic State group. They aren't coming home, and the United States isn't leaving the turbulent Middle East, according to current plans outlined by U.S. Defense Secretary Mark Esper before he arrived in Afghanistan on Sunday. The fight in Syria against ISIS, once spearheaded by American-allied Syrian Kurds who have been cast aside by Trump, will be undertaken by U.S. forces, possibly from neighboring Iraq. Esper did not rule out the idea that U.S. forces would conduct counterterrorism missions from Iraq into Syria. But he told reporters traveling with him that those details will be worked out over time. Trump nonetheless tweeted, USA soldiers are not in combat or ceasefire zones. We have secured the oil. Bring soldiers home. So here we go again. Now, I don't know how many of you guys remember this, but there was a story from, I want to say, eight months ago maybe, about how Donald Trump randomly one night tweets, that we're, I'm officially bringing our troops home from Afghanistan. He may have said Iraq, too, but I think it was just Afghanistan. And, um, you know, I was like, hey, man, that's awesome. Good stuff. Well, come to find out, like two or three days later, the news broke. We weren't bringing him home. He just tweets it, and he just says it. And oftentimes, the military overrides him. And they're like, no, no, we're going to go ahead and not do that. Thank you. And now listen, man, you could say he's disorganized. You could say sometimes he surprises everybody with what he blurts out on Twitter. All of that is true. You could say he's unpresidential. That's true as well. But the fact that the military just overrides him, what? He's the commander in chief. And then also Trump doesn't like follow up and make them do it. It's like, Okay, I don't know, how did we get to this position where everything is so stupid and everything is so wrong and nothing makes sense? <laughs> like, he said we were going get to get out of Afghanistan. We didn't get out of Afghanistan. And then he just kind of, like, let it go. And was just like, yep, yep, I guess we're not, uh, we're not getting out. That's, uh, that's what I'm told. He always tells the stories about the, gen- the generals come in. You know, they're all buttoned down, very nice. They look like they're right out of central casting. It really is unbelievable. More and more people are coming in and they're saying, Sir, Mr. President, Mr. President, sir, we cannot leave the Middle East. And I say, well, General Raisin Cane, I'm not kidding, actually, there's a general name that he called him that. I said to him, General Raisin Cane, I think that you have very good knowledge on this situation and I'll let you decide and I'll let you make the decision and I'll let you be the one to lead us on this on this very turbulent issue. He would never use the word turbulent. I don't know why he threw that word in there. Um, 
but we'll be looking at it very strongly. Me and my generals will be looking at it very strongly, and then we will always do whatever thing is more pro-war. That's what we'll do, as long as it's more pro-war. Um, and that's what happens. Now, I like to think of myself as super consistent. <laughs> and if Donald Trump were to actually get out of Afghanistan, I would give him credit. If we were to actually get out of Iraq, I would give him credit. The media would rain holy hell on him and act like he's, oh my God, this is so crazy. I can't believe he's doing it. I can't believe he's doing it this fast. I can't, but look at the fallout. Look at the attacks that are happening as a result of it. I will defend him if he were to do that, but he's not doing it. In the case of Syria, what did I tell you in the initial segments? I told you we're not even out of Syria. We're just shuffling troops from one part of Syria to another part of Syria. And there are still already troops in other parts of Syria that he didn't even flirt with pulling out. So we're not getting out of Syria. By the way, yes, the problem with what Trump did wasn't that he withdrew from that region. The problem is he gave a green light to Turkey to, to wipe out the Kurds. That's the problem. You know, we should have gotten out, but we should have brokered a deal with the Syrian government to take our place so the Turks don't invade, or we should have had UN peacekeepers so the Turks don't invade. But again, the argument I see everybody else making is, oh my God. We shouldn't have gotten out. No, then you're taking the Trump bait, and he's going he's gonna to beat you when it comes to the political argument in the next election because you're taking the bait. Now, all of a sudden, you're saying, no, 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 I'm pro-war. No, don't do that. But this is, okay, now here, here's where everybody needs to sit down for class and listen closely, okay? This is where you attack. Here, he's giving it to you. He's giving it to you. This is the area where you attack, right here, right here. The argument shouldn't be, we, uh, we should have never left Syria. We should go back in and always send troops to places that are not going to attack us. That's what we should do. No, no. Here it is. Here's your argument. Here's the case you make. Here it is. Oh, you're a fraud. You're not actually anti-war. You're not a non-interventionist. You're not getting our troops out of harm's way. You're not being intelligent in the Middle East. All you did was move them from point A to point B, and they're still over there. And there's an argument that now we'll be even more involved in the Middle East. Because before it was the Syrian Kurds who were fighting ISIS directly, and we were just kind of sitting on the sidelines in northern Syria. Now you move those troops to western Iraq, and now you're saying they're going to be more directly involved in fighting ISIS. So let me get this straight. We always had troops, forget northern Syria, we always had troops in other parts of Syria... We didn't even flirt with pulling them out, okay? They're still there, and they're staying there. And by the way, yes, the main goal of those people is to try to facilitate a regime change with the Syrian government and getting rid of Assad. And we've armed rebels to do exactly that as well. Moderate rebels are actually jihadists. But we're in other parts of Syria not leaving. We're in Iraq not leaving. Now the troops that were in northern Syria are also going to Iraq to further fight ISIS. So it's just, just so you know, we're not getting out of anywhere. We're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. We're still in Syria. We're still doing drone strikes. He increased drone strikes 432% over Barack Obama. He pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement, threatening and, and escalating to war with Iran, at, even though they followed the agreement to the letter. They followed the agreement, and we pulled out of it, and we violated it. And we're waging economic warfare on that country and not allowing in medicine. With Venezuela, we're seizing food shipments into the country, economic warfare. People are starving, and instead of helping them, we're seizing food shipments and then blaming it on Maduro. So 
he's not anti-war. He's not anti-war. He's not anti-war. He's not anti-war. How many times do you want me to say it? He's not anti-war. Point that out. You have to point that out. You have to run against that. You can't immediately take the bait when he does a head fake of non-intervention in northern Syria. Now all of a sudden you're arguing for intervention. What political losers and what unprincipled goons too. But now you know the specifics, man. I just told you all the specifics. That all the troops that were in northern Syria are now in Iraq and they're going to fight even more than they were before. So this is a lose, 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 lose. And every time he goes on Twitter and does his little like fake anti-war rants, just know he's full of it, guys. He's full of it. Because the reality on the ground is very different from what he's portraying it as. All right, Mayor Pete, who is somehow continuing to get worse. Mayor Pete doubled down on his awful corporate centrism on Fox News in an interview that he did with Chris Wallace. Do you think that some of the solutions that are being offered, whether it's on climate change, Medicare for all, by Senators Warren and Sanders, are too drastic? I think that we have a chance to build an American majority around bold action. But it is the case that uh, we could wreck that majority through purity tests. Look, take the example of, of this Medicare question. I'm proposing Medicare for all who want it. It means we create a version of Medicare. Everybody can get access to it. And you get, if you want to keep your private plan, we're okay with that. I think that's a better policy than kicking people off of their plan. But I also think that it's something that more Americans can get behind. And when you think about the condition our country is going to be in when this presidency comes to an end, one way or the other, when you think about how torn apart by politics we're going to be, how polarized and divided this country is, this to me is not a political question. It's a question of governing. And the good news is we can govern in a very bold and forward-leading direction, but we've got to make sure we do it in a way that moves toward unifying rather than further polarizing the American people. Not surprisingly, the left is firing back at you when Elizabeth Warren said that she will not participate in big fundraisers, even if she is the Democratic nominee against Donald Trump. In the next fall, you said this. Let's put it on the screen. We are not going to beat him, Trump, with pocket change. Here's how Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez responded. Small-dollar grassroots campaigns, a.k.a. what Buttigieg insults here as pocket change, out-fundraise him by millions. Our nation's leaders should be working to end the era of big money politics, not protect it. So, what do you have to say to ALC? Well, first of all, you don't go from mayor of South Bend to a competitive presidential candidate without knowing a thing or two about grassroots campaigning. My campaign is fueled by the contributions of almost 600,000 individual donors, and most of those are small contributions. What I'm saying is that we can't go into this fight against Donald Trump with one hand tied behind our back. Look, the President of the United States and his allies just raised $125 million. They will pull out all of the stops to stay in power. And I think we have a responsibility to the country to make sure that we go into this fight as Democrats with everything that we've got and not unilaterally dis
disarming. We indeed need to end the era of big money politics. That's why campaign finance reform is so important, and it will never happen as long as the folks currently in charge stay there. You can't argue for campaign finance reform like you just did while also disagreeing with the principle of it, which is what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders are arguing for. Did you notice that contradiction? He's like, well, I mean, we got to do campaign finance reform. It's really important. Why? Why do we have to do campaign finance reform? Finish that thought. Why? 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 Because the current way we do elections has legalized bribery. It's corrupt. So you're saying it's corrupt and we got to reform it, while at the same time saying, I don't want to go into the fight with Trump with one hand tied behind my back, so I'm going to play by the same rules. So in other words, it's really corrupt and we need to stop it, and oh yeah, I'm going to participate in it. Mayor Pete is a hack. Mayor Pete is a fraud. Mayor Pete believes in nothing except getting Mayor Pete elected. Is that clear enough? There are tweets from Mayor Pete back when he was pretending to be on the left, where he was arguing with people on Twitter saying he's for Medicare for all. In no uncertain terms. There was a receipt that it, it said Medicare for all written on it, and he said, like, working on it, tweeted that one day. And now all of a sudden, he's the, the biggest opponent of Medicare for all, and he's med- arguing for Medicare for all who want it, which is just a public option. And the problem with the public option is they're gonna, the private health insurance companies are going to take all the sick people, pawn them off to the government system, the public option, and then they're going to keep all the healthy people, and then the quality is going to tank of the public system because it's not fully funded, because it's, there's no single payer, there's no risk pool that's spread around. It's all the sick people that are in there. So it's going to be overburdened, the quality is going to suffer, and then everybody's going to turn around and go, see, private systems are better. And he knows this. He's smart enough to know this. Did you know that Mayor Pete, he, there was a segment from him maybe a year ago. He was on, like, Morning Joe. And we covered it. We covered it at the time. I forgot about it, but it's been brought back up to my attention. Brought in? It was brought back up to my attention. Um, he said, and this was a great point, he said, well, hold on now, hold on now. Medicare for all is the compromise. Mayor Pete said that? Yes, Mayor Pete said that. He said Medicare for all is the compromise. The true left-wing position is the NHS in the U.K. You know what the NHS is? Public funding of public institutions. So not only are, are the tax dollars the insurance, it's also that all of the doctors work for the government. Everything is public. Everything is government when it comes to health care. That's the true left-wing position. And he says the middle ground is Medicare for all. Medicare for all is public funding, so a single payer, a single insurer of private in- institutions. So in other words, the doctors can be private. The doctors can be private. They can run their own practice. They're not employed by the government. They can be self-employed or work for, you know, a different private group or whatever it is. But it's a single insurer. That's Medicare for all. So there's public funding of public institutions, NHS. There's public funding of private institutions. That's like France. He says that's the, that's the compromise. So we need to change the debate. We need to change the debate to reflect what it is in reality. That's what he said. Now he's totally against Medicare for all. Oh, my God, it's too far left. It's too scary, even though I just called it a compromise not too long ago. And the thing that I'm arguing for is a public option that I'm misleadingly calling Medicare for all who want it. And I'm pretending like I don't understand why that's a terrible idea. Uh, Somebody tweeted at me, and I love this, because he took my example and ran it through the finish line. Um, 
Mayor Pete's next proposal is going to be firefighters for all who want it. It's a great way of thinking about this. Certain things, it's preposterous to argue, oh, choice is so important. You should always be able to choose your doctor, and you will under Medicare for All. But the idea of choice outside of that for health insurance, you want a choice as to which mafia is going to rip you off and price gouge you? How about we get rid of the mafia? How about we get rid of the price gouger? That's my take. Um, so Medicare for all who want it. Oh, please. So he wants to negotiate from the watered-down position. He also says um, purity test. Uh, we're going to ruin it with purity tests. No, it turns out that when you look back at recent American history, the problem wasn't purity tests. The problem was the lack of purity tests. So what do I mean by that? We had a Democratic supermajority under the Obama administration. Now, the left at the time was not as ascendant, and we didn't have the rallying cry around a bunch of specific policies back then like we do right now. What, what's our rallying cry today? Medicare for all, free college, living wage, end the wars, Green New Deal, legalize marijuana, criminal justice reform, release all the nonviolent drug offenders. We have like really clear policy goals that we believe in. Take no corporate PAC money, don't be corrupt, like super specific. Back then we didn't have that. Back then Democrats were elected and it was a, you know, a whole bunch of different messages that they ran on. None of them were as bold and as strong and as correct as Bernie Sanders. And so we had a Democratic supermajority and we got a Republican health care plan, Obamacare. That's an individual mandate style system that style of reform originally came from the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing think tank. We literally took the right's own health care plan and passed it. It's Romney care. It's Romney care. That's what it is. So the problem was we didn't have a purity test. We didn't hold politicians' feet to the fire. We didn't say, no, 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 you're going to do this, or we're going to primary you, and you're going to lose. If we had that at the time, maybe we would have gotten at least a public option. We could have gotten Medicare for all if they actually believed in it and fought for it. If we were organized around that issue and we could all systems go full court press when they, they don't fall in line. So that's the problem, Pete. The problem wasn't a lack of purity test. The problem, excuse me, the problem was a lack of purity test. The problem wasn't a purity test. So what Mayor Pete wants is for you to shut up and fall in line and vote for him regardless of what he ends up doing. How mighty convenient that is. Um, and then finally, he says, oh, we need to be unifying the country, not polarizing the country. Okay, well, I got news for you. You don't do that. You're way more polarizing than you are unifying. Why do I say that? The polls. Mayor Pete's supporters are mostly relatively affluent white people. Relatively affluent white people. He's got 2% support among black people. Um, and he doesn't do particularly well with the crossover Trump voters. The people who do the best with that are Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang. So his idea, we got to unify the country, not polarize the country. Okay, well, thank you for endorsing Bernie. I really appreciate that. And by the way, this message, unify around what, Pete? Pete will say, you know, I'm for good things and against bad things. We should unify around that. What does that mean? Here, I got an idea. You want to unify around something? Class solidarity. How about that? How about the top 1% and corporations and billionaires are rigging the system against regular people, and we're going to unify against those people and reform this government to work for the 99%. How about you want to do that? Oh, no, you don't want to do that. Oh, you wanted to do platitudes and cliches and say nothing and get people to like you anyway. That's what you want to do. You want to stand for nothing, believe in nothing, and still get the title of president and get people um, to vote for you. That's what you want. He's such a fraud, I can't take it. I cannot get over. The grossest part of that was he's flat out arguing for corruption, just so you know. 
oh, I don't want to go against Trump with one hand tied behind my back. We can't do unilateral disarmament. So in other words, you're saying, I'm against the corruption, but I'm going to partake in the corruption. Because he says, we got to do campaign finance reform. We have to do it. Okay, why? Because the system's corrupt. But then you also say, we got to play by the rules, so I got to be corrupt. What do you want me to do? This is the lunatic ramblings of a person who really does believe in nothing. I'm not kidding, guys. He doesn't believe in anything. He will say anything to get elected, and he's just playing a game. This is all a game to him. That's all it is. You think he actually is concerned about if, – if he really cared about the thirty to 45,000 Americans who die every year because they don't have health care, he would say Medicare for all, and that's it. He would be unflinching, uncompromising on that position. You know, if he actually cared about the 500,000 Americans that go bankrupt every year because of medical bills, he would be unflinching on, uh, in that stance. You know, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care. And um, he is one of the favorites now of the establishment and of Wall Street. So now you know. And you could see that he very clearly pivoted in that direction because he sees a lane there. And he really exposed himself as quite the fraud. All right, Rand Paul. Rand Paul wrote a book about how socialism is very bad. And he went on Fox News here, and he and Jesse Waters are going to ever so meekly and weakly try to make this case. Who could possibly think socialism is a good thing? Well, we hear this from AOC and, and even Bernie Sanders. You know, real socialism, we're not talking about Venezuela. We're talking about the Scandinavian countries, right? Norway, Sweden. Well, you've done a lot of research in the book. What have you learned about Scandinavia and socialism? Interestingly, we learned that Bernie's socialism, he couldn't get elected in Denmark. Really? In fact, really what he advocates, most of the things in Denmark and in, in Scandinavia are the opposite. In fact, the Danish prime minister came out and said to Bernie, quit calling us socialists. We're not socialists. So the first problem with their argument is, most of Scandinavia has private property, private stock market, the economic indexes that measure freedom and trade, they, hire, they score them like the top ten in the world. Here's the big rub, though. Bernie wants to raise corporate income taxes. He objected to Trump's tax cut that lowered ours from 35% down to 21, and he wants to be like Scandinavia. Well, Scandinavia has been at 21 for the last mm -hmm. 30 years, so he really doesn't know what he actually wants, but people should be alarmed because socialism's greatest association has been with genocide and famine for the last hundred years or more. So you're saying even the Scandinavians believe socialism is a slur? Politically. Absolutely. They're afraid it'll hurt business. They're That's amazing. Bernie, be quiet. Bernie, we're, not a, we're not a socialist nation. All right. There's so much to say about this. First of all, for every one politician that you can get to say what Rand Paul said right there from Scandinavia, I can get 10 to say the opposite. So he really doesn't want to walk down this path because we're going to obliterate him by his own standard here. Oh, I found one that says, uh, you know, this, this is not what we are. Okay, well, I got 10 who say the opposite, so I outnumber you, so I win. Or we could drop this part of the conversation and move on, and I'm willing to do that. We don't have to – I mean, he opened the door to that argument, but I'm, I'm fine not 
using that argument, because there's a lot of other stuff he gets flat wrong there. But let's just assume for a split second, and I do mean a split second because he's wrong, but let's just assume, okay, fine, let's take your word for it. They're, they're like uber capitalists, and, and, you know, we should only talk about the capitalist aspect of Scandinavia. Okay, well, um, then let's implement their version of capitalism. Now, I dare you to go tell a right-winger today, I want to implement the Scandinavian-style system here. What do they do? They immediately flip and go, that's socialism. Wait, what? So because they can't, they know they can't explain away how well those systems function, right? Because they do. They function very well. So then what do they do? They turn around and go, but the reason why they function well is, is capitalism. Okay, so let's copy their systems exactly to the letter. No, we can't. That's socialism. <laughs> that makes less than no sense. There's a great meme that goes around. You know the you know the meme of the reality show where they're yelling at each other and was it Pawn Stars? I don't know if it was Pawn Pawn Stars or somebody else, but they're they're yelling at each other and it says like, I really like the Scandinavian style system. Uh, you know that system is uh, is socialism. No, that system is capitalism. Okay, let's implement that system here. No, we can't. That's socialism. So, something along those lines. I'm definitely butchering it, but you get the point. The point is, they'll say, it's ca- oh, it's capitalist, it's capitalist, capitalist. And when you say, great, let's do that version of capitalism. Call it whatever you want. Let's implement that system here. No, we can't. That's socialism. So that shows you, you know, it, they're using weaselly arguments and trying to, they do the old Ben Shapiro trick. Everything good about those places, you can credit to the capitalism. Everything bad about those places, you credit to the government. Oh, well, how convenient. That happens to perfectly match with your ideology. Now, furthermore, um, he says, well, everything that, uh, that Bernie advocates for, they don't have that there. Excuse you? What's his one example? Oh, the corporate tax rate. You know, oh, we lowered it here to 21%. Their corporate tax rate there is 21%. So, and Bernie wants to raise it. See, he doesn't want to be like them. What's he not telling you guys? That's the nominal rate. That's the nominal rate. The nominal rate is not the effective rate. So my guess is, and I don't know this off the top of my head because who the hell does, (laughs) but my guess is if you look at the effective tax rate for corporations, um, it is actually 21%. So what it is on paper in Scandinavia is what it actually is in real life. They have a 21% on paper. There aren't all these crazy loopholes and deductions, and so it ends up effectively being 21%. What's the effective corporate tax rate in the United States? And this is back when the nominal rate was 35%, okay? So the, the rate on paper in corporate tax in this country was 35% a few years back. You know what they were effectively paying? 12 to 14%. So, see, it's, it's a little, it's a misleading argument because he's not giving you the effective rate. Oh, Bernie wants to raise the corporate tax rate, but in Scandinavia it's 21%, and that's, why don't we keep it at that? Because we were never really paying 35% here when the rate was nominally 35%. Now that it's 21%, we're not effectively paying 21%. We're always paying lower than that. So, yes. The other thing is, why is he singling out corporate taxes? You want to, let's have a conversation about their marginal tax rates, Rand. You want to do that? What's the marginal tax rate on the top bracket there? Oh, you don't want to do that because that makes Bernie's case that it actually is a social democracy. And, by the way, that's the main argument to take away here. It's that... Yeah, they're not socialist. We agree. They're not fully socialist. 
but they are the definition of what's called a social democracy. You, you know what another term for social democracy is? Welfare statism. Weird. They are the most successful countries on the planet, and they are quite literally defined as welfare states. So what that means is you mix socialism and capitalism. It's a mix. Certain things are totally in the free marketplace, you know, and then other things, there's a really strong, vibrant social safety net that hits everybody's bare minimums. So he, he says, oh, but the stuff Bernie wants, they don't have there. Scandinavia, they have, they have universal health care. That's what they have. Now, there's a, a variety of different versions of getting there in different places in Scandinavia. Some are single-payer systems. Some are what's called a multi-payer system. Um, but either way, you have tax dollars funding in, uh, the health care full stop, full stop. So, again, you want to copy that, Rand? If you want to copy that, I'm down. But that's, I guarantee you that's when he'd turn around and say, oh, no, no, they're socialists. So you're saying they're capitalists until we say, then let's do that here, and then you say they're socialists. Um, and then the final thing I'll point out here is he says Bernie couldn't get elected in Scandinavia. I don't know how we could possibly come to that conclusion. Why? Because you're citing some conservative politicians from those places to make that argument. He actually argues for almost exactly the system that they have in their respective uh, Scandinavian countries. So his ideology, his philosophy is right in line with what they advocate for there. And that is definitely just a silly hearsay from Rand Paul. There was one more part that I'm forgetting. Let's listen back to it, and maybe it'll come to me if we listen back to it. It's worth listening to again because it's so off the rails. Who could possibly think socialism is a good thing? Well, we hear this from AOC and, and even Bernie Sanders. You know, real socialism, we're not talking about Venezuela. We're talking about the Scandinavian countries, right? Norway, Sweden. Well, you've done a lot of research in the book. What have you learned about Scandinavia and socialism? Interestingly, we learned that Bernie's socialism he couldn't get elected in Denmark. Really? In fact, really what he advocates, most of the things in Denmark and in, in Scandinavia are the opposite. In fact, the Danish prime minister came out and said to Bernie, quit calling us socialists, we're not socialists. So the first problem with their argument is, most of Scandinavia has private property, private stock market, the economic indexes that measure freedom and trade, they, hire, they score in like the top ten in the world. Here's the big rub, though. Bernie wants to raise corporate income taxes. He objected to Trump's tax cut that lowered ours from 35% down to 21, and he wants to be like Scandinavia. Well, Scandinavia has been at 21 for the last 30 years, so he really doesn't know what he actually wants, but people should be alarmed because socialism's greatest association has been with genocide and famine for the last 100 years or more. So you're saying even the Scandinavians believe socialism is a slur? Politically. Absolutely. They're afraid it'll hurt business. They're That's amazing. Bernie, be quiet. We're not, a, we're not a socialist nation. The main trick that Rand Paul is using there is a trick that we've seen on the right forever. They conflate. They want to pretend like Everything that's authoritarian is by definition socialism, and that's why you should be against socialism. And that is incredibly disingenuous, because what you find is, and if you had conversations with socialists, they're the first to point this out, they're anti-authoritarian. And so it's not like people are 
saying, oh, we should implement a, a socialist-style system and do controls on the media, confiscate all private property. This is not what these people argue for. So when they take authoritarian regimes and they use that as the prime example of socialism, they're being misleading on purpose because all they want you to do is associate in your mind socialism with authoritarian controls on the media, authoritarian controls on social issues, government being too involved in your life, confiscation of private property. And you know he's full of it because he cites private property there as a reason why these aren't socialist countries. Bernie has never, ever, ever argued against private property. Has Bernie ever called for a full ban on private property? No. He wants to take certain things and remove the profit motive. He thinks that something like healthcare, something like college education, this should be out of the free market. That doesn't mean he wants to nationalize all industries, only the ones that should be nationalized he wants to nationalize. And he's not in favor of you know, getting rid of the First Amendment and doing authoritarian controls on the media. So you see the dirty trick that he's, he's using there? He's trying to make people believe that when you hear socialism, just think authoritarian, and that's what socialism is, full stop. He's not giving any respect to the various varieties of leftism and socialism. Um, he's not, I'm sure he doesn't even get into the idea of worker-owned co-ops, which is a post-capitalist idea, which is just democracy in the workplace. It's just, okay, let's, what if everybody in the factory had an equal say as to the direction of the company? Is that so scary? See, they try to conflate that with, like, Mao <laughs> or Pol Pot, and they're like, oh, no. All socialism, all leftism amounts to authoritarians doing genocide. Like, that's the case he's trying to make. And you know he has no actual case against the real left because he's not even treating our argument seriously. He's just strawmanning and then knocking down the straw man. You know, hey, man, I can play this game, too. You want to play this game? All right-wing uh, philosophies end up at fascism. So all right-wing ideologies are, hey, man, it is what it is. They end up as authoritarian right-wing ideologies. They end up as fascism. I could write a book just doing smears on every flavor and variety of right-winger. I could do that, but I'm not, I'm not going to because I want to actually listen to the arguments of the other side and then think about it independently and then break it down. I don't need to strawman the other side in order to feel like I won some exchange. No, I'll listen to what you actually believe. If I think you're making some good points, I'll tell you. But, you know, I'll probably disagree on most stuff, and that's fine. But I'll be serious. I'll treat your idea seriously. I won't strawman and then knock it down. And that's exactly what he's doing here. So stick to, uh, stick to not sucking on foreign policy, please. Okay, next. I got to speed up, bitch. I still got plenty of stories to get to. Here's a story that might surprise some of you a little bit. President Trump appears likely to win re-election next year according to three different economic models Moody's analytics uses to measure 
presidential contest. Moody's modeling, which has only missed one presidential election, excuse me, since 1980, found that Trump, who won by a 304 to 227 margin in the Electoral College in 2016, could easily surpass those results in 2020. The three different models showed Trump winning either 289, 332, or 351 votes in the Electoral College over his eventual opponent. The projections are based on how consumers feel about their financial situations, stock market gains achieved under Trump, and the prospects for unemployment. If the economy a year from now is, is the same as it is today, or roughly so, then the power of incumbency is strong and Trump's election odds are very good, particularly if Democrats aren't enthusiastic and don't get out to vote, Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics and co-author of the paper, told CNBC. Quote, it's about turnout. Now, that is a giant, giant, giant if. Like, oh, um, if the economy is in a similar situation that it is today, then he's very likely to win re-election. Yeah, but there's been the alarm bells have been going off for an extended period of time now because a downturn is expected. A, a relatively large, profound downturn is expected. So it, that's a giant if. Like, oh, if that happens, then everything will be okay. Well, you could have said in 2006 the same thing. You could have said in 2006, like, well, if the economy remains as it is right now, then the Republicans are likely to win the election of 2008 as well, but that didn't happen. So listen, man, as of right now, they're holding this thing together with duct tape, dog. I mean, the economy and anything could be the catalyst. I think our economy is largely a house of cards. So really anything could be the catalyst and then it's all bets are off and there could be a giant plunge. We could look at a recession or even a depression. Um, but what do you expect? We have $1.5 trillion in student loan debt. We have over a trillion dollars in credit card debt. We have a totally unregulated derivatives market, multi-trillion dollar unregulated derivatives market. Um, we have Wall Street, which is, it went right back to their same old tricks that they were doing prior to 2008. We have a housing market, which is just a bubble that's been reinflated. Wages haven't really budged. They're still stagnant as they've been from the 1980s. You know, what do you think is going to happen? We can only keep this up so long. And then not to mention, you got a race to the bottom. We have outsourcing. We have automation. There's, we're in trouble. So I don't, I, I wouldn't take too much away from this story because this model has been wrong before. And the model is saying, if the economy stays as it is, then Trump is in a good position. But I feel everybody knew that if the economy would, well, no, that's not true. Some Democrats are so blind, they think no matter what, Trump will lose. But I think every reasonable person knew that, bar a big crash, he could still make his nonsense case. And um, it is possible that he wins re-election. And it's possible he wins over 300 electoral votes, man. But to me, the biggest factor, other than the economy, is, of course who the Democratic nominee is. And they even say at the end, man, they say, particularly if Democrats aren't enthusiastic and don't get out to vote, it's about turnout. So you need a movement candidate. And the movement candidate is Bernie Sanders. That's why I've been so adamantly arguing in favor of Bernie is because I think he's our only sure thing to beat Trump. I think everybody else, it's a question. I think Elizabeth Warren is a coin flip. I think if it's 
um, Joe Biden than Donald Trump is the favorite in that election. So if we nominate Bernie, I don't fear what this says at all. And I think even with the economy still as it is, Bernie would be Trump. But imagine the economy crashes and it's Bernie versus Trump. Bernie definitely wins. Um, But bottom line is, guys, and this is an important point, you cannot underestimate Trump. You cannot underestimate the Republicans at this point in time. Because you got to understand, nobody expected, well, that's not true, but over 90% of people thought Trump was going to lose. Maybe that's not true either. (laughs) I'm, I'm botching this. Bottom line is, the pollsters said there's an over 90% chance that Donald Trump um, loses the election, and the pollsters were dead wrong. They underestimated him then. I think they're underestimating him now. But I also think that um, it's a lot more nuanced and a lot more balanced than, than this report is leading on. Because if you look at some of the traditional economic indicators, yes, the economy is doing okay. But I've argued on this show for a long time, the traditional economic indicators are largely nonsense. The unemployment rate is really not the best measure of the economy. In fact, it's a pretty poor one because it's not even the actual unemployment rate. You basically double what the official unemployment rate is, and you get the actual unemployment rate. So it's it's about 8%. That's the actual unemployment rate. And then you got to include the people who are underemployed as well. And you got to look at wages, which are stagnant. And they don't really take any of this stuff into account. They just look at the stock market and the unemployment rate and act like those are the two biggest things. Well, no. If the economy was really healthy, 78% of Americans wouldn't be living paycheck to paycheck, and they are. So um, the thing to take away from this story is don't underestimate him. He's still a real threat, okay? Don't get arrogant. Don't get cocky. But also... Don't be as resigned to him winning as this is leading on, because I think that the way in which they're analyzing it is flawed, which is why they're not 100% with their prediction. Obviously, they got one election wrong in the modern era. So I don't know which one that was, by the way, but it's a more nuanced picture, but take both things seriously. The prospect of, his winning, you have, of him winning, you have to take that seriously, and uh, you also have to fight really hard for Bernie because he's the closest thing to a sure thing as we'll ever get in an election. All right, next. Fox News hosts were talking about the idea of mandatory 20% gratuity uh, for restaurants. So a new law that would mandate a 20% tip when you go to restaurants. Um, And so their takes on this were exactly as loathsome as you'd expect them to be.
these are millionaires. These are millionaires. These are very, very wealthy people. And again, the law they're discussing is 20% gratuity for a restaurant. So they're talking about waiter, waitress bringing you, in this case, they're saying coffee. They bring you some coffee. Maybe you're at a table and they hold out the thing. Oh, how much do you want to tip? And they don't tip. Man, I actually think that the tipping thing says a lot about a person. It does. Now, maybe you're in a position where you're not doing well financially and you can't afford to do it. That's one thing, okay? But if you can afford to do it and you don't tip well, man, that's wrong. I got news for you, man. These people, they don't want to be doing that. They don't want to be serving your ass anything. They don't. They feel like they have to do it. They're in a weird position in their lives. They, This is what they're doing. They're waiting tables and... You know, it's tough. It's a tough business to be in. It's a tough way to spend your time. And the least we could do is let them know that we thank them for it by helping them financially. I always try to tip as good as possible. Um, And when people don't do it, that upsets me. Now, I will say this. We shouldn't have to rely on people's kindness when it comes to tipping. So in other words, I don't, I don't even like this idea of the mandatory 20% tip law, but I like the idea of manda- mandating a living wage. You should mandate a living wage, for sure. I, I get it. Like, some industries work on commission. Some industries work on tips. They should. <laughs> it should be, you should have a, a bare minimum living wage for every profession. There should be no exceptions to that. Now, I get it. If they want to set up a system that's a commission-based system or a tips-based system, after they hit that that minimum living wage standard, that's fine. But they need to hit that minimum living wage standard, and we simply don't have that. We have a lot of exceptions to even our minimum wage, which already isn't a living wage. We have exceptions to that. So my idea is I want everybody to have a living wage and no exceptions, but um, we don't have that now. So you have to deal with the system that we have in front of us. The system that we have in front of us, uh, you know, a lot of people are, their labor is drastically undervalued in the field that they're in. And 20% gratuity law is what they're discussing. And they don't, they say, I don't, I don't tip in, in a lot of these circumstances. I mean, there's not, I can't say enough negative stuff about this because it says the kind of people they are. They don't value people who do those kinds of jobs. They don't value them, even though, you know, these are things that those people don't want to be there, but they're also doing something that's kind of important. Like society needs to function. Society needs to flow. And so there's a lot of jobs that people don't really look upon favorably, but they're being done by people who are sacrificing time and, you know, trying to make a living doing it. And they just don't appreciate it. They, this shows you the fraud that is the far right pretending to be pro-worker. Because these, it, when it all comes down to it, these are corporate elites on Fox News. That's what they are. And even though Trump does this fake, like, pro the little guy, I'm for the working man tap dance, it's nonsense. It's not true, which is why his tax bill overwhelmingly benefited the top 1% in corporations. If you make $75,000 a year or less, your taxes will go up under Trump's bill over a decade. 
So it's not true. They're not actually for working people. And every now and then you get these little cracks and they show their true colors. And that's exactly what Jesse Waters is doing here. He's showing his true colors. And his true colors are, I don't really value working people. I don't really value anybody in the service sector. He's a multimillionaire Fox News goon who gets paid to go on TV and say stuff like Trump is awesome and immigrants are bad and, you know, war is good. Like, he gets paid millions of dollars to give his opinions. And his opinions happen to all suck. But he gets paid millions of dollars, and he looks at people who are really working hard for a living with disdain. And he doesn't even give them a bare minimum tip. It's really pathetic, but it does show you his true colors. It does show you what these people are actually like and what they actually believe. So next time they pretend to care about working people, remember this clip. This next story proves that a lot of these elites never, ever learn. This is from The Hill. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg has signaled to allies that he's considering jumping into the race for the Democratic presidential nomination if former Vice President Joe Biden falters and Senator Elizabeth Warren continues to rise. According to a CNBC report, Bloomberg told associates in recent weeks that if Biden were to drop out of the race before voting begins, uh, he would consider launching a a late run for the nomination over fears Warren would drag the party too far to the left. While Warren has caught Biden in some national and early state polls, the former vice president remains a top contender for the nomination. Quote, I think it's something he wants. He has not been shy about that, an anonymous Bloomberg ally told CNBC. Nothing can happen unless Biden drops out, and that's not happening anytime soon. I have so much to say about this. So first of all, Hillary Clinton just said that Tulsi Gabbard is a Russian asset because Hillary says Tulsi's going to run third party to try to be a spoiler. Now, Tulsi's not doing that, and she's made that crystal clear. But Hillary's argument was you're running third party, you're trying to spoil the race, trying to spoil the race for the Democrats. So, therefore, you're a Russian puppet. Well, Michael Bloomberg is saying in no uncertain terms, Maybe I'll hop in the race. Maybe I'll hop in the race to try to spoil it for Elizabeth Warren. Why isn't he accused of being a Russian puppet? Oh, that's right. That only applies to people who are against war in Syria. That only applies to people who she could spin their non-interventionism as being pro-Russian. doesn't apply to centrists. Now, by the way, he says, oh, he might hop in the... Um, Democratic primary this time around, last time he was threatening, maybe I'll do an independent run. If Bernie got the nomination, he was saying, maybe I'll do an independent run. So that would be him hopping in the race, running as an independent. By their logic, they say, hey, man, that helps Trump. So why isn't he accused of being a Russian asset? By the way, I guarantee you, he would consider it in the general, too. Hear me now, quote me later. Hear me now, quote me later. Because it's going to be either Bernie or Warren that gets the nomination. It's going to be one of those two. So will Bloomberg hop in the race as an independent then? 
And will Hillary call him a Russian asset? She's definitely not going to call him a Russian asset, but he might actually hop in the race. That's the first point. The second point is, guys, look at how he thinks this comes across versus how it actually comes across. Michael Bloomberg genuinely believes, like, bro, I might have to come in and save the day. I might have to do it. I might have to jump in and save the day. There's going to be nobody else. Only I could save the day. That's how he thinks this comes across. How does this really come across? We all look at it and go, oh, my God. The last-ditch effort by the establishment to stave off the necessary progressive populist rise in the Democratic Party and in the country. So he thinks he's coming across as some sort of hero. Only moderate can be Donald Trump, even though moderate lost to Donald Trump. Yeah. He thinks he comes across as a hero. Really, he comes across as the villain trying to save the corporate class and the billionaire class at the last moment from the real serious attempt at a political revolution. Man, this dude has a giant savior complex. And the final point is his ego. His ego is unbelievably gigantic, embarrassingly huge. Embarrassing. Listen, man, he's most known at this point in time probably for um, opposing the raise of the minimum wage in New York City. He's known for being a staunch, staunch supporter of stop and frisk. Even though stop and frisk has been proven to overwhelmingly crack down on people of color who are innocent. I forget the exact number, but I think it's like over 99% of the time, stop and frisk yields nothing. So you take away the rights of brown and black men in New York City, no Fourth Amendment protection for them. They can be walking down the street, minding their business, not doing anything wrong. They can get searched. 99% of the time, it finds nothing, and he supports this policy. And by the way, the few times it finds anything, it's like small amounts of marijuana. So this is a guy who has helped perpetuate the drug war. This is a guy who helped perpetuate a racist police department. Those actions are, I'm sorry, whatever you want to call them. You want to not blame the cops? Fine with that. But the policy itself has that impact. Cracks down on communities of color unjustly. They're not going to stop and frisk the Wall Street guy who's got cocaine in his pocket. They're not going to stop and frisk him. So he's known for that, and he's also known for banning big gulps. So this is a guy who thinks he's going to hop in the race and win. He thinks he has any prayer at all. He is he's so openly and clearly an elitist. Like, his whole thing is shut up and work for a starvation wage against a living wage stop and frisk people who I will just assume are criminals based on the color of their skin and ban large drinks. Why? Because I don't think they're healthy. That's not healthy. And I will intervene and stop this. How about you piss off? How about that? I mean, and you're legally allowed to get two of the smaller size, which would then equal a big gulp, but you can't get the big gulp. He's a, he's an authoritarian. That's what he is. He's an authoritarian. He wants to control your life. He wants to not, you, you know, make the economy work for regular people, but he wants to control your life socially. Honestly, just terrible, 
horrendous. Terrible, terrible, terrible. So um, this is a guy who's thinking about jumping in the race because he's afraid of what will happen if Warren or Bernie gets the nomination. Um, Elizabeth Warren has a 50-50 chance of beating Trump. Bernie Sanders has an 80% chance of beating Trump. They're the only people who are favorites. Michael Bloomberg would never get through the primary, but he would get obliterated by Trump. Um, Joe Biden. Trump is the favorite if it's up against Joe Biden. So his whole theory of politics is just wrong. It's just wrong. He's just incorrect. His ideology is terrible. His political strategy is terrible. And we wouldn't even be talking about him, oh, maybe I'll jump in the race, if he wasn't a billionaire. That's what he is. He's a billionaire, and he's basically like, buying this level of media. Just for the record, it's not like, oh, somebody close to him just happened to leak this to CNBC. No, he told somebody close to him, go tell them I'm thinking about running. Why should we care? Nobody cares. You're not going anywhere. You're a joke. You're the last ditch effort of the establishment to stop real progressive change. Piss off. All right. Now we're going to talk about Joe Biden. Joe Biden decided to pick a fight with Facebook since uh, they're refusing to pull a Trump ad that targets him and his son over Ukraine. So The Hill says, former Vice President Joe Biden's presidential campaign on Thursday hit Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg over a speech where the executive defended his company's decision not to take down political advertisements with inaccuracies. Quote, Facebook has chosen to sell Americans personal data. The politician is looking to target them with disproven lies and conspiracy theories, crowding out the voices of working Americans. Bill Russo, the Biden campaign's uh, deputy communications director, said in a statement, Zuckerberg's attempted, I think that's supposed to say, Zuckerberg's attempt to use the Constitution as a shield for his company's bottom line. No, it's correct the way it is. Zuckerberg attempted to use the Constitution as a shield for his company's bottom line, and his choice to cloak Facebook's policy in a feigned concern for free expression demonstrates how unprepared his company is for this unique moment in our history and how little it has learned over the past few years, Russo said. Biden's campaign lashed out after Zuckerberg delivered a speech at Georgetown University where he argued that it is not Facebook's role to moderate political content. Um, Now, so this is a little bit of a mixed issue here. Facebook has chosen to sell your data, not just to politicians, but all across the Internet. Um, and I do think there are some serious privacy concerns. I do think we maybe need to break up Facebook, maybe need to break up a lot of these big tech companies. Um, So there are serious issues there, and I do think that Mark Zuckerberg is not principled in his defense of free expression or anything. He's just trying to protect his own butt, and he's just trying to protect, um, you know, protect Facebook and make more money. So, yes. His concern for free speech is fake. But Joe Biden's concern for fact-checking is also fake. Just as fake as Mark Zuckerberg's concern for free speech. Why do I say that? 
Guys, I got news for you. The reason why all the Democrats are flipping out over this Trump ad is because it's effective. They have Biden on video threatening to withhold a $1 billion subsidy from Ukraine if they don't fire their prosecutor. Now, Biden argues, hey, man, I wanted them to fire the corrupt prosecutor and replace him with the non-corrupt prosecutor. So they're, they're interpreting what I did there as the exact opposite of what it actually was. Okay, but I mean, the prosecutor who ended up taking the place of the guy they wanted fired investigated um, Joe Biden's son and this energy deal, and he didn't pursue any charges or anything. Hmm. So it's just, one can argue kind of on principle that you're like, Maybe the problem is just flat out that you're meddling with their country anyway. Like, why should we be able to dangle money over them like that to do what we want? Isn't that like, from their perspective, they could say, America's meddling in our country. America's meddling in our elections. They're meddling in our country, and that's not okay. If anybody else did that to us, oh, my God, we would lose it. But we get to do it to them, and it's that smug, like, that smug position of Biden and other establishment goons of like, of course we can do that. And of course it's fine. Now, furthermore, the ad points out all the money that uh, Hunter Biden was getting in this, from this Ukrainian natural gas firm. They want to bury that fact. They just do. Now that's another thing where put aside the thing with the prosecutor and getting them fired. Cause I don't know what's true. And frankly, I don't care about that. What I do know is the only reason Hunter Biden was getting paid we thought the number was 50000 It turns out it's actually $83,000 a month. The reason Hunter Biden was getting paid $83,000 a month from this Ukrainian natural gas firm is because his last name is Biden. And so if you think that there's no weird stuff going on behind the scenes, no corruption, no pay-to-play, I got a bridge to sell you. It is happening. So the reason why Biden is flipping out and trying to get, and other Democrats are flipping out and trying to get Facebook to pull this ad from Trump that points it out, honestly, is simply because It's an effective ad, and people watch it, and they go, oh, yeah, it does appear like Joe Biden, some sketchy stuff is going on, kind of corrupt. So my problem with Biden, my problem with the Democrats has always been recently that whenever there's a fight, they try to run to the mods. Like, they're running to Facebook to say, oh, and you're just going to not ban this? Is that what you're going to do? You're just going to leave it? What? Why don't you just fight back? There's so much stuff there from Trump. That's way worse than what's happening with Biden. The emoluments clause violation, the corruption that Saudi Arabia is giving him hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then he's arming and backing their genocide, even when Congress said, you should stop doing that, he vetoed it. So he argues you're corrupt. He is corrupt, and the corruption is leading to facilitating a genocide of Yemen. Why don't you point that out? Why don't you point out the 83 $83 million, 82 or $83 million that Jared and Ivanka made in one year in the White House? Why don't you point out all the foreign influence, all the Israels funneling money to Jared Kushner? Israeli banks are giving him money as he says, oh, I'll broker a peace deal with the Palestinians. Oh, please, you're bought by one side. Are you kidding me? Guys, he's so ripe for attack in so many ways. And my problem with Biden, my problem with the Democrats is instead of understanding the political era that we live in 
and acting accordingly and saying, oh, so you're taking a shot at me? How about I slit your throat and gut you like a fish? Politically, of course. <laughs> but, like, that's what you need to do. And instead of doing that, he picked a fight with Mark Zuckerberg because Mark Zuckerberg's position on this issue happens to be correct, by the way, even though his motives, he didn't get there the right way. But his position of, hey, man, listen, Facebook's just a middleman. We're not in business of pulling stuff down. It is what it is. We're not, we're not taking any stand at all. We're just a middleman. And, you know, I sympathize with that position because it's almost like people could come at me and say, Kyle, I can't believe you allowed this comment to be posted on your YouTube channel. And my response would be, I don't moderate. I don't curate. It, it is what it is. Like, I'm, it's just a, a, a bathroom's wall. That's all it is. That's all it is. So I'm not going to go through everything with a fine-tooth comb and make it my job to filter it and censor what I – no. So it's just – it's a category error. You're asking me to do something that I don't do. It is what it is. I'm not responsible for it. Whoever put the comment is responsible for it. Mark Zuckerberg's not responsible for Trump's ad. Trump is responsible for Trump's ad. Now fight back. But no, instead they run to the mods. They want Mark Zuckerberg to start censoring stuff. And the cherry on top point here, which really makes me lose it on this issue, is – they refuse to do any of the intellectual exercises. They refuse to think about this and really look at the chessboard and how this will unfold going, going forward. Because here's the reality, guys. If you allow Facebook and you say, okay, we want you to filter everything. We want you to censor the things that are not true. How, why on earth do you trust them? And how on earth do you know that they'll get it right? I do not trust Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires to get this right. They've already teamed, oh, well, we have some fact checkers, and they team with some insane right-wing websites. Of course that's not going to be done in the right way. And who's going to fact check the fact checkers? Guys, the fact checkers were the ones who just told us, the Washington Post idiot, Kepler, whatever his name is, he was saying, oh, Bernie Sanders is wrong on Medicare for all. What? No, he's not. He's actually 100% correct. What are you talking about? Oh, Bernie Sanders was wrong by saying 500,000 people go bankrupt because of medical bills. It turns out the medical bills is only a portion of the stuff that they – have debt on, so you can't just put it on the medical bills. Nuance trolling to death. But if we have a system where Facebook gets to just pull whatever they want, I don't know, I don't like this, I don't think it's true, and they pull it, you don't think this is immediately going to backfire on the left? Of course it's going to backfire on the left. The left will become the number one target. Everybody who's anti-establishment and populist and on the left, they will nuance troll you to death. They'll be incredibly tedious. That even if you say things that are true, they will claim it's false and use cockamamie arguments to come to that conclusion. And also, they don't acknowledge there's a massive gray area. They try, like Biden thinks what? Everything is either on or off, black or white. No, Joe, there's a lot of claims that are in a gray area. Like, okay, that's kind of true if you look at it this way, but not if you look at it this way. And all, they don't care about any of this. They don't care about how this is going to unfold. They don't care. All they know is that ad is bad for us. Ban it, please, Mark Zuckerberg. So Mark Zuckerberg is actually 100% correct on this issue. Even though it's for the wrong reasons, I don't care. Facebook shouldn't be in the business of fact-checking and censoring and pulling stuff. They should be in the business of doing none of that and saying, hey, man, we're just a middleman, okay? And all the Democrats need to accept it and just fight back, man, because I got news for everybody. Think about when we learned that the DNC was rigging the primary against Bernie Sanders. We learned from WikiLeaks that that was the case. Mainstream media ignored it all and act like that was a conspiracy theory. So, okay, let's say you have mods. Let's say you have Facebook determining what's allowed and what's not allowed at that time. Which side do you think they would have came out on? I got news for you. They would have came out 
on the side of the establishment, and they would have said it's a conspiracy to say it was rigged, and they wouldn't allow that stuff on there. The Iraq War. In the lead-up to the Iraq War, they said the conspiracy theory was to be against the war and to say he didn't have weapons of mass destruction. Should Facebook be involved in pulling down those comments? Because that's what the establishment would have wanted. The establishment would have wanted, oh, you got to pull down the anti-war stuff. What are you kidding me? Censorship always backfires on the left, but Biden and the corporate Democrats are begging for more censorship, and it's pathetic. All right, final story of the day, y'all. Final story before Politicon. Here we go. The Sinaloa Mexican drug cartel, formerly run by El Chapo, just successfully defeated the government in a battle. This has to be like some sort of historic event here. This is incredibly wild. So this is El Chapo's son. El Chapo's son was captured by the government, and then this happened. The Mexican state of Sinaloa erupted into violence Thursday as police captured and then released the son of drug kingpin Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. The failed raid has called into question the Mexican government's ability to contain drug violence. Nick Schifrin explores what this says about the capabilities of the United States' top ally in the fight against illegal narcotics. The descent into chaos played out on social media. A phalanx of Mexican security forces deployed to a neighborhood controlled by the powerful, locally-based drug cartel and capture their target, Ovidio Guzman Lopez, who now runs the family business built by his father, known as El Chapo, Mexico's most infamous drug lord, now in a U.S. prison. But then the cartel called in the cavalry, with music blaring and phones filming, gunmen with machine guns and rocket-propelled grenades raced to the rescue. They deployed a 50 caliber machine gun that's so heavy it's attached to the back of a truck. And the mayhem began. members and Mexican soldiers fought in the streets and paralyzed Culiacan. The violence left vehicles burning and dead bodies in the middle of the city in the middle of the day. For residents, it was absolutely terrifying. They fled for their lives. This woman carried her baby in her arms. And on a nearby road, a father shields his daughter. Daddy, can we get up? She asks. No, no, no. No, my love, he says. This level of violence is stunning, even in a country known for violence, and it's never happened in this city. Here in the capital of Sinaloa State, the Sinaloa Cartel, long led by El Chapo, even when on the run from Mexican and U.S. authorities, controlled the city and kept the peace. And as residents searched for safety and the gun battles mounted, the cartel took soldiers hostage. And that's when the government released the kingpin they'd captured, having achieved nothing except for the death of eight people. Today, Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador defended the decision to retreat. La captura. The capture of one delinquent cannot be worth more than the lives of people. Las vidas. So they captured him, and then basically the drug cartel got all their gunmen together, all their hitmen together, 
got heavy artillery, heavy weaponry, and basically took a town hostage and were ready to just massacre everybody in sight, genocide style. And basically, AMLO was put in a corner where he was like, I, we have no option. We have to let El Chapo's son go because they will massacre everybody if we don't let them go. And, and so he had to let him go. He had to let El Chapo's son go. But guys, this is a drug cartel outgunning the Mexican government and outwitting them in that they got what they want because he was forced to be released. So the drug cartel, you want to talk about a narco state. The drug cartel has as much power, if not more, than the government in many ways. Okay, listen. The only way to defeat the drug cartel, and not just this cartel, the cartels, plural, the mega cartels that now exist, the only way to defeat them, legalize drugs. It's the only way. It's the only way. Now, you might say, whoa, 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 that's a little counterintuitive. How? How does it defeat them if you legalize drugs? Very simple. The way the system works now, these drugs are on the black market. So they have a monopoly. The cartels have a monopoly. So they make all the profits. They sell all the product. They make all the profits. And by the way, they rule with an iron fist since it's on the black market. You can't settle disputes in court. You have goons, thugs, criminals, gangsters controlling the market. And when there's a dispute, they settle it with guns in the street. But if you legalize tax and regulate drugs, you know what happens? You have legit businesses that put the cartels out of business. So if we uh, just imagine for a second there were legal ways to create the product, ship the product where it has to go, and to sell the product, you would have upstanding businesses with dealers that are professional, a supply chain that's reasonable, and a cost that's lower, and then there's no way the drug cartels would be able to compete, ever, ever. So you have to legalize tax and regulate drugs, and you have to get supply chains that are connected to a legal business. Because if it's legal, upstanding citizens partake in the economy and are the ones doing the work and creating the product. If it's illegal, it's always going to be gangsters and thugs. So I'm sorry, guys, but that's the only way to defeat the drug cartel. That's the only way to do it. You're never going to beat them in this war because there's always going to be a demand and it's always going to be very profitable to be in the drug business with the system as it exists right now. So you have to put them out of business. And the way to put them out of business is to legalize tax and regulate drugs. It's the only way, man. It's the only way. I'm serious. It's the only way. So, And I actually feel really bad for AMLO because AMLO has been doing a lot of great stuff recently. And this was like a big defeat for him because the drug cartel basically checkmated him and put him in a corner and he had to do what he had to do. He needs our help, and the way that we help him is to legalize tax and regulate drugs. That's the way that we help him, and every country should do that. And then there's no way the drug cartels would be able to survive if that happened. There's no way. Over time, they would just go away, and they'd be forced to go into other businesses. And some of the people would still be bad people and be gangsters in other ways, but there's no way you'd have this much concentrated power that can basically overrun the Mexican government. 
if you take that policy approach and do the right thing. Okay. All right, guys. We are done. I love all you. I'll see you at Politicon. Check out our, my YouTube channel. Check out Corin's YouTube channel. Um, I'm sure you'll see all the stuff. It'll be a lot of fun. But uh, I love you, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.